Robert Edward Grant is the epitome of what you might call a renaissance man. But that word has been overused and misused, and it doesn't mean as much as it used to. What it really means is that he studied so many different classical disciplines, from mathematics to philosophy to geometry to theology to study of direct artifacts and experiences in the pyramids of ancient Egypt. And he synthesized all of this information within himself so that he can share radical new discoveries about number sequences and about undiscovered things and aspects of paintings of Leonardo da Vinci to undiscovered inscriptions inside the king's chamber in Egypt, in the pyramids. This is a wild and incredible podcast. I can't wait to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Onnit, and I wanna spend this time talking about the four different types of alpha brain that Onnit is currently offering. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, alpha brain was Onnit's flagship. It was the revolutionary nootropic formula tested twice in double-blind clinical trials and shown to be effective in helping improve focus and general cognitive function. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's studying or podcasting, it's something that you can put in your tool belt to help elevate your consciousness. But now we have four different iterations. And of course, there's the original capsuled alpha brain. And one of the advantages that I love about the original formula is the inclusion of cat's claw. Cat's claw is really long-term, highly neuroprotective. And so it's a very well-rounded brain formula. And then there's the instantized version, which comes in these little packets that are delicious that you can mix in water. Now, I typically bring those when I travel and you have the option. You can either drink it fast and get the full dose of original alpha brain immediately or drink it slow if you have a longer, more drawn out day where you wanna spread the effects out over an hour, two hours, just mix it in your water bottle. And again, it tastes awesome, so that's also an advantage. Then there's the Alpha Brain ready to drink shots. And you just rip the cap and drink the Alpha Brain. And it has a slight modification to the formula in that it includes a little bit of caffeine. And caffeine and Alpha Brain pair brilliantly together. So this is gonna pick up your energy as well as giving you the cholinergic boost that Alpha Brain is known for. And then there's the Cadillac, which is Alpha Brain Black Label. Alpha Brain Black Label has a couple different advantages. One is a full dose of mecunipurians, which increases and up-levels the availability of dopamine in the brain, which is great for modulating your mood into a much more positive state. Then there's a full, full dose of phosphatidylserine, which has a host of different benefits. Of course, there's the nutritional mushroom lion's mane and a variety of different ingredients that we put together. It took us over 10 years to develop a formula that was worthy of carrying the Alpha Brain name and being significantly different. And we did it with Alpha Brain Black Label. So that's a brief explanation of the four different types of Alpha Brain. So if you're interested, check it out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on all of the different alpha brains. Next up, we have Cured. Now, I would be drinking a Cured elixir right now, except my wife, Vailana, drinks them so fucking fast that I can't even get my hands on one because she loves them. And the reason why they taste great, they got a bunch of really dope flavors, ginger lime, spicy mango, crisp apple, 
And all of them have a combination of CBD, mushrooms, vitamin D, and they're delicious sparkling beverages. So I love that from the company Cured. I also like their CBN, which is part CBD and part CBN. Both of these cannabinoids have different functions, but they're very good at helping you relax, calm down, get some good sleep. And that's what I'm into these days, getting good ass sleep. That's really important. So if you're interested, go to curednutrition.com slash amp, and you can get 20% off if you use the coupon code amp. Once again, C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash amp at checkout, save an extra 20%, and you're already getting 16% off. So total of 36% off, pretty good and deal. finally, Cured we have nutrition.com. So one of the things that I can't stand about traveling is all of the shitty, harsh cleaning products that you'll find in different Airbnbs and hotel rooms. You just can feel that there's a lot of toxic chemicals that are being used to both wash your dishes, clean your sheets, wipe down your bathroom counter. This is something that really needs to change from the chemicals that we put in our food supply to the chemicals that we put in our food supply through the dishes that we're actually using and through the sheets that we're wearing, the way in which chemicals are absorbed through our skin, all of this needs to be reimagined and Branch Basics has taken care of that. They have non-toxic cleaning products of all different varieties. The packaging looks cool too, so you'll look stylish. You know that you're actually providing your home and your guests in your home with really actually clean products that they can use. Branch Basics is better for babies. It's better for pets. It's better for you. It's a clear, easy choice. So check it out. You'll get 15% off all starter kits at branchbasics.com slash Aubrey Marcus, just like it sounds. Branchbasics.com slash Aubrey Marcus, and you will save 15%. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Robert Edward Grant. Robert, I had a whole way that I was going to enter this podcast. And then my wife brings out her Tibetan bowl and starts singing. And uh, I have tears coming down my eyes because this typically happens to me when there's something that I've forgotten, even if it's temporarily. And I think in the last few days, I've been very much in my masculine you know, very much deciding, planning, plotting, doing things in a very active expression with very masculine archetypes and people. And as she was singing, it started to reawaken the feminine side of my soul. And as I remember, then the tears wash away the forgetting. And so here I am, and this is such a big part of your message about, and a message that's been encoded potentially for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, however far you want to trace back the Great Pyramid. So this is a big topic to start to enter. But ultimately, let's start there with this balancing of the feminine and masculine expressions of ourself. And then we'll get into all the mathematics, the necessity for being a polymath or what they used to call a Renaissance man and so many other ways and places I wanted to go. But just take for a moment about this necessity and this cathartic remembrance that, you know, I just experienced. Yeah, that's really powerful. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Um, you know, I, th I think that 
It was not long ago that I heard a great quote actually on one of your podcasts. Hmm. And I think it was, I can't remember the name of the woman it was um, on your show, but she said that the one divided itself into the two for the joy of becoming one again. Mm. And to me, that's a, a really beautiful statement. I would even expand it to say the one divided itself into the many for the joy of becoming one again. That's Emily Fletcher. Emily Fletcher. And mm -hmm. I think that this is the moment in time where humanity is going through that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, uh, it's not just an optional choice at this point. Now it's time. It's time to really do this. And the consequences are at a stage where playtime's over. Recess is over, kids. You know, now it's time to really do the work. And I think a lot of people are looking at solving the problems from a purely technological standpoint, which mm -hmm. all has its place. Yeah. Sure, if mm -hmm. we want to remove the acidification of the ocean through some technology, or if we want to, great. I'm, I'm not saying not to do this, but I think the big move that needs to be made is a shift in consciousness. Because yeah. without that shift of consciousness, that's sitting upstream. That's the poison pill at the fountainhead of all of the things and systems that are, you know, across the world. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that we are a society that has become, at least for the last few thousand years, very dualistic in so many aspects. I mean, we've been in this age of Pisces, which is two fish tied together, but going in opposite directions. And thinking that one is the light and the other is the bad, one is the good, one is the bad, and it's this duality perception. And we don't even realize that our own perceptions are driven by our own conditioning biases, that we don't know that the things that we think are ethical are very often the things that are just benefiting us in our own conscious mind. Mm -hmm. And then we want to enforce that on everybody else because we tend to see the world as we are rather than as it truly is. And we have sort of lost our ability to empathize, our ability to step in another person's shoes and see their perspective on the world. Our, that muscle of, a muscle of, uh, that muscle of um, empathy has really become vestigial or completely, you know, atrophied. Mm -hmm. And I think this is because we are a society that's so stuck in either thinking left brain or right brain. And never the twain shall meet. So we have some people in the world, thank goodness, that you know are the artists and the creators and the people that are the, the ones that bring joy and music into our lives and imagination and creativity. And then we have the other aspect of society, which is very left brain. Yeah. And and that's probably more the pathway that I came through. You know, uh, I ended up starting off life very much feeling like, okay, I'm I'm a Taurus and I need to have everything understood in the material sense. I need to understand the materiality of the world. And I think along that path, at some point, I realized that I was too far in the extreme. You know, as you get to that middle point of life, you end up having sort of a midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And I didn't buy a Porsche. You know, I already had a few. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe my midlife crisis started when I was in my 20s. But, but certainly I felt imbalanced. And not in touch with my heart. It's funny that the, just as a, a bracketed side note, that the solution that people apply 
in this midlife crisis is, ah, I know the problem. More of the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, so true. I'm feeling a problem. That's but right. if I double down, the problem will solve. But yeah. isn't that how so many people of course. sort of try to attempt to solve their problems without realizing that everything that we judge in this world around us is what we will attract mm -hmm. until we no longer judge everything we attracted. And so what happens is we, we start to think of ourselves as a hammer that's always looking for nails. And hammers have a way of finding nails. Let's unpack that a little bit because, you know, one of the, one of the guides for me is a gentleman named Paul Selig who channels, uh, who he calls the guides who go by a name that sometimes is given Melchizedek. And his, but his words are just ring so true, you know, and I'm always... I'm always first skeptical of everything that, that anybody says like that. But he says, if you put anyone in the cave, meaning judgment, the cave of judgment, then you go in the cave with them, right? And so you're saying what you judge attracts. So, okay, so you, anybody you judge or anything you judge, you go into that place of judgment with them. Then you apply the law of resonance on top of that, which is like attracts like. So if you are judging, you then become in resonance with that thing you were judging. And then through the law of resonance, you are going to attract more of that thing you were judging. It's kind of like what we used to say on the playground in like, you know, elementary school. I'm rubber and you're glue. Everything you say <laughs> bounces off me and sticks to you. Yeah. Right? Right. It's this kind of concept where we don't realize that the way we see the world around us and all the things that we see in other people, if we spot it, that's a trigger for us. And the thing that we spot is actually what we got. Mm -hmm. So I used to always say this all the time and say, well, if you spot it, that means you got it. The thing that you're seeing in other people that you don't like about yourself, that you don't, and you, you don't accept about yourself because you press it into your subconscious, you, you keep it outside of your persona. Because we all think that the persona is the thing. And when we look in the mirror, that's, who the, that's how the world sees us. No, we're, we only have eyes in the front of our head. We can't see full 360. We can't see right. 180 degrees, right? We can see 180 degrees with our peripheral vision. But we can't see the other 180 degrees. That other 180 degrees is what other people can see. And that's why it can be so valuable to do what's called a 360-degree review with somebody. Yeah, what other people, meaning everybody right. and everything mm -hmm. and all dimensions and all times can see that. That's right. Don't even, it's not just like, oh, well, my wife can see everything behind me. Well, she can see some things. Well, that's right. And, and it's, it's the full perspective. It's the full perspective. And, and thank goodness, you know, I've had experiences like that. Yeah. I had a 360-degree review when I was in my 30s. And I remember going through it the first time. It didn't feel very good. It would put me in a place of discomfort, I'll say that much. It was like an executive training type thing. And and my peers were supposed to give me a review. Yeah. And I was always good with the people that were my subordinates and my management teams, you know, the people that were reporting into me directly doing reviews. And I always tend to do pretty well with them. And I always did well with my bosses. But where I didn't do as well was with my peers. Mm. Right. Because they would sometimes feel threatened or whatever. I don't know. Sure. Right. But I wasn't even aware of it. That's the point. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. I went back to MBA school when I went back to MBA school because I, I felt like, well, you know, I was already more senior in my career path. And I said, but I still want to go back to MBA school because I don't feel like I know what I don't know. So maybe if I go back to MBA school when, in the world of business, I'll at least learn 
the limit of my knowledge. Right. Right. And we have this word, it's a fancy word, entropy, which means chaos, right? Randomness. I don't really believe in randomness, but let's just say that this word exists. And the definition of the word is not truly well understood or well defined. The, probably the best way to define it is the boundary of where knowledge ends and ignorance begins. That's entropy. Mm. So it's the zone of we don't know what we don't know. So when it comes to our own personalities and our personas and the, our subconscious minds, by definition, it's in the zone of we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. So life, I believe, is about us learning to transcend through this polarized perception of vision, seeing the world around us, learning to replace judgment of others with love and acceptance. Because that is tantamount for us to be able to feel the same way and look at ourselves with that same love and acceptance. There's two, it's two ways that you can go. You can go in through love and acceptance for all parts of yourself, what mm -hmm. you would typically call shadow work, although mm -hmm. that, you, that term is, I think, mischaracterized mm -hmm. a lot because ultimately the shadow is that which you cannot see. So you have to have some process where you can illuminate that which you cannot see, That's which the often seeing involves what you, the other The limit people. of the, you know, I, we used to always say in business, right? It's like, I, I didn't know anything. I, I couldn't find my ass with both hands, right? That's yeah. kind of the saying we would say for someone who's a newbie in a space or category industry. And you kind of have to learn that zone or even what the context of that learning would be to be able to reference it to yourself. Right. And right. that is what shadow work ultimately starts off with. Yep, yep. So it's either internal work or external work working on, you know, you hear the stories of, of different spiritual teachers who have that person that's the hardest for them to love on their altar because they're using the external to mm -hmm. learn how to actually love the wholeness of themselves mm -hmm. as the universe in a drop rather than a drop in the universe, you know, kind of changing the roomy quote around a little bit. One thing I want to, one thing that comes up, so many things, so many paths I want to discuss with you here. One thing that comes up that I've noticed recently is, and, and I say this in like the past year or so, but mm -hmm. I've seen it actually play out over time, is there's a quote from Nietzsche, and I don't have the words exactly, but, you know, basically saying, be careful, stare into the abyss, and the abyss stares back at you, right? And I've seen people who've been really focused not necessarily incorrectly so, although sometimes hyperbolically so, exaggerating the darkness, but looking at the darkness, which has exposed itself in the world over the last two years. Mm. But they've looked so deeply into that darkness, so consistently every day, every different article, every different way that they can look into the darkness. I've seen the darkness start to creep inside them, inside their own psyche, inside their own... And they're actually in this field, like you were saying, of resonance where their own judgment and what they're looking at is then starting to actually change their characteristics themselves. And I think this is something to be really mindful of for all of us. Like, be careful staring into the abyss and only the abyss for too long because it will start to change your very nature. You'll start to become in resonance with the abyss itself. Do you remember, I think it was, Bat, I can remember if it was Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. I think it's The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. Where um, the guy that played Two-Face, you might remember this. Yeah. And it was in the, the one with Christian Bale yeah. as, as Batman. And there's a quote in it where he says, hope that you live long enough to defeat the villain, but not so long that you become the villain. Yeah, he says that to Batman. Mm -hmm. He says it. He, I can't remember who he says it to. I just remember yeah, it's like yeah. this scene. Wow. It's like when his face got you know half yeah, burned off type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I find that fascinating because again, it's this concept of 
we we start off and we all have sort of somewhat of a vigilante in each of us, right? We want to do of course, the right thing. And which is also based on the hubris that we feel like we see everything better than everybody else and we should be the arbiter of justice. Totally. So let's get on Twitter and fuck that person up for what they said. No, no, I saw we it. know what they meant. I have a perfect example of this this week. I have a I have a friend uh, who is you know super uh, super aware and super conscious. And she basically posts on positive stuff all the time and so this guy goes on her page and he starts saying that she is representing 100% toxic positivity. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm like, toxic positivity. Okay, so let me just grok that for just one moment, right? Toxic positivity. And and the first thing that I had to do is, of course, I, I wanted to go to his page to see what was on his profile. And the first thing that it says is defender of the oppressed and weak. So this is kind of illustrating my point, mm-hmm. right? Which is, at a certain point, we can become the imp of the perverse and not even realize that it the happened to us. The imp of the perverse, indeed. Right? We, we all want to be the hero, but don't realize that when we start to press our view of the world on the rest of the world around us, then it can take on kind of a, a very different feel, which becomes one of negativity. As you said, when you go in the cave of the person you're judging, you take on the characteristics of that cave. Yeah, You can't help but be sympathetically in resonance with that cave. Yeah, And what we just experienced, right, where we had this beautiful song and everything, that put us in a sympathetic resonance of heart space, right? Yeah. Which is, I'm yeah. still trying to pull myself out of right now. <laughs> Thank <course>. you. <laughs> yeah, Get sure. back into my left brain, damn it. And, uh, but but basically, I think we all fall victim of that. We don't even realize when it's happening to us because it's in the zone of we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a concept in, you know, the Kabbalist mysticism in the Zohar, and it's the idea of the, the Sitra Akra. And the Sitra Akra is, is somewhat translated as the upside down, but more literally, it means to, instead of being face-to-face with the divine, which means in the light, in the truth, in the way, I guess, if you wanted to say it from Jesus's terms, which I don't know if the, my Jewish ancestors would appreciate me quoting Jesus. And he this, was Jewish too. This term, he was, <laughs> he was indeed. Uh, <clears throat> but ultimately like face to face with the divine, which is looking at the light. And that means seeing that all is of, all is of God or nothing is, as Paul Selig says, like it's all part of the divine emanation. And so to actually have perspective, you have to see everything from every perspective, or at least even if you can't articulate it, feel that thing. That's face-to-face. That's the opposite of Sitra-Akra. And the moment you move into your separate self, which is to shut off at least the side of your face from the divine, that's creating distortion. So the prism, instead of being a clear prism face-to-face with God, the prism has distortion. And the farther you turn away from the divine, the face of the divine, the deeper into Sitra-Akra you go, the deeper you go into the upside down, because the more distortion is created until You've literally turned your back on the divine, which means that you believe as your separate self that you are the divine, denying the, 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 the unity, the interbeing, the state of interbeing that you are with the rest of the world. And then so you're in the deepest distortion because the light is not, it's obviously still penetrates through, but it's all distorted. And I think this is, you know, this is the place we're in. We're recognizing that 
we've all turned our face from the divine in a huge way. And frankly, for good reasons, because God has been one of the, quote, God, and I say that with quotes, God as told by the church has been one of the most oppressive forces <laughs> in human history, right? Which obviously isn't the God that we know in our hearts, that is our hearts, you know? But that force itself has oh, yeah. actually twisted us and turned us well, away from actually even the understanding of God. And then now we're living in this reality where, yeah, we're in the Sitra Akra, and now it's time to turn our face back towards the truth, the light, and the divine. And that's kind of what we're all trying to do is bend our eyes back to, back to the truth. It's interesting. If you go back thousands of years, I can imagine a shepherd on a hillside, probably somewhere in the Middle East, maybe even, you know, either in the Fertile Crescent or maybe over, you know, somewhere on the Mediterranean where Israel would be today or Palestine, whatever you want to basically refer to it as, mm -hmm. that area. And one man saying, okay, my grass is greener, but you know, when you're there, if you, have you been to Jerusalem? Mm -mm. I got to take you. I got to take you. I'm going mm -hmm. in February again. But when you're there, it's astounding. If you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look at the Temple Mount, which is called Mount Moriah, across the Valley of Kidron, the Mount of Olives is right beneath you. You're looking down. You can see the east side of, of the the Temple Mount, which is where King Solomon's temple was, right? And then there's another valley on the other side. You really are astounded by the fact that if you just look behind you, you're at the top of the mountain on this mm -hmm. side, it's all desert. Mm -hmm. It's all desert. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing there. It's nothing all the way Dead Sea. It's nothing. Then as soon as you're on this one side of this mountain, all of a sudden the climate's completely different. It's like this oasis in the middle of the desert. Now, you can see why people fought over this land, because it was about survival, right? It's 100% about survival. So let's say you're a shepherd and you have this flock and you're like, well, this year, you know, the sun's been kind of harsh on my side of the hill. My neighbor over there, you know, he worships a different God. And my God came to me in a dream last night. His, green, his grass is really green. And my God came to me and said, you know what? I need to kill him and consecrate his land to my God. And that's a righteous act. We're talking about, since the beginning of time, the most heinous acts that we can even contemplate in society have been started with that line of thinking. Yeah. And the conflation of true God with the ego's self-serving bias and the ego's inflationary tendency to be, I am the only God. That's right. So I'm the defender of the oppressed. I'm the defender of the weak. And I'm the defender of my God. And mm -hmm. this concept, I think, is what has been so challenging for humanity. Right. And I think it's a, it's a construct that's very much tied to dualistic thinking. Right. Yeah. And I think where we're now transitioning towards is to be able to see more perspectives, more viewpoints. And I think the, the doorway for me personally was drawing geometry. Yeah, I wanna get, I wanna talk about that. That's I think very important. And also all of the different decoding you've done of all of the people who've been leaving us clues along the way. But just to stick with this point and double click on it one more time. I mean, when Jesus was saying, love thy neighbor as thyself, what he was pointing to was the true, was the true nature of yeah. the divine, which is that you are me living a different life. So killing you is killing me. And so, 
ultimately we have to figure this out and say, you got some grass over there. And they got to look at you and say like, I got some grass over here. I am you, you are me. Exactly. Let's work on this together. Exactly. Let's fucking figure it out. And, mm -hmm. and in that way, both could be part of the same thing. But in this identity, the self-identification of separateness, separate God, separate self, separate this, then the natural inclination is war, conflict rather than cooperation. Yeah, we, we just lose sight of the fact that I tend to think of the universe less as a universe and more as a you inverse. So if you start to think that because I can't separate myself from my own conditioning biases, I can't separate the lens of my perception from all of the history of my nurture and nature experiences, right? And my genetic code and all the things that come along with that. If I can start to think differently about, can I put myself in another person's shoes? And if they go back then to the same, you've been quoting Jesus, so I'll go ahead and quote too. Uh, by the day, by the way, today is a very special day because today is the day, the National Day of the Rose, right? Mm. The National Day of the Rose, which is representative of early Christianity, also amongst many other things, and um, something that's really important about this is this concept of sacrifice as well. And Mary Magdalene's symbol was also the red rose, but so was the Virgin Mary's symbol. There, you've got it right on your arm. So. The, and I've been thinking about this all morning, about this concept of, of the rose, because I've always had this symbol in my mind, and I'm a Taurus, and I, the bull loves the rose. And the reason why it's the rose that he loves is because the bull's eye, which is the brightest star in Taurus constellation, is Aldebaran. Aldebaran is the brightest star, and it's the right eye of the bull, and it's a red star, and it's the rose. Hmm. So there's always symbolisms in cartoons. You see where the bull is always surrounded by roses and so you go to a bullfight in Spain and they've got the red rose around there. It's all this part of the same symbology. Well, what we all do not recognize is that the things that we're judging in other people are the things we don't like about ourselves and that this universe is really a universe of projection of your subconscious mind and the sum total of all your conditioning biases. So instead of judging these things, we should learn to love and accept it, which is exactly what Jesus taught. He taught two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. The second is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Might have been one commandment. Might have been one. <laughs> Might have been the, one. And that's the secret. It was, he's saying the same thing twice. And there's a provided however that. It's like a contract that's got a provided yeah. however that, right? The provided however that is judge not lest ye be judged with the same judgment that you cast. And the ye in this context, when you actually read it in the original text, can easily be translated just as you said. It might be the same thing between neighbor as thyself and yourself, right? God as well, love mm -hmm. God. Actually could also mean lest you judge yourself mm. with the same judgment that you cast on others. Because you, you are. Because you are. I <laughs> am that I am. You know, one of the great things is funny, when Donald Trump became president, I'm not a Republican, I'm not Democrat. I'm independent. I'm absolutely like middle of the road on same this same. one. So, but I had a hard time when Donald became president, I'll be honest. I had a hard time with it because I'm like, geez, you know, why can't he just like communicate a little differently? Yeah, just come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> I know, it's like, 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 I was like and, and it's on, yeah, again. And I've met me, him, I've met the guy yeah. just, you know, 20 years ago or something, and he wasn't a bad guy. He was actually like a very personable person. 
and everybody that's met the person says this about him, but he but I also knew Mitt Romney very well right because at one point in my career the Republican party asked me to run for US Senate and I said well I'm an independent and they're like yeah but we know Republicans can't win in California and it's funny because I didn't run and the person I decided not to do it after I had worked on a few campaigns just to see what it would be like I really I was on Meg Whitman's campaign I got involved with hers and and I got involved with uh with Mitts and and I just watched the process. And I was like, uh, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Like, run, right? Yeah, no, right. thanks. So I didn't run, and no one ran against her. And guess who ended up running in that election? Kamala Harris. She won in California. There was no opposing candidate. So she literally just got in without any issues. But I, I remember going to the ballot box going, oh, my gosh, no one ran against so her. So the vice president might be your fault. Might be. Sure. <laughs> it might actually be. Jeez. <laughs> what the hell? Or, you know, your benefit. I don't know. But but I just didn't want anything to do with it because I realized it was just another thing that was tied to judgment. And I was such kind a of toxic, moving out a toxic of such a toxic environment, toxic environment right? And, Even more toxic now. Oof. I mean, like what we saw in the, in the Trump-Biden election was the worst of humanity. In many ways, like oh. it was, it was the worst. It was the worst form of communication I've ever seen. Like, it, like it, honestly, it was, it was horrible. It was totally horrible. So, as I was kind of looking at that, I watched Donald get elected. Every day, I'd like turn on the TV and I'd be, and my wife would go, "Why are you so upset about this?" I go, "But he just needs to change the way he says this. He has it. I mean, what the hell? You know, some of his right. principles aren't horrible, right? They're right. not horrible, but the way he goes about it is just like driving me nuts." And then finally, I realized, why is it that this is triggering me so much? Because I am that. Mm -hmm. I had to come to the realization that some of the things that I couldn't stand in him are things I was in denial about related to my own personality. Right. And I had to learn how to integrate that. So that by the end of his presidency, I was like, Okay, I accept that this is just the way he does things, and I, I was no longer triggered by it. And I think all of us, you know, we tend to run away from the things that trigger us in other people. That's why it's wonderful to have opposition things. That's why it's wonderful to have the duality experience, because through that experience, we learn more about ourselves and learn to transmute our negative feelings toward it to feelings of acceptance and love. Yeah. When I, I discovered a prime number pattern in 2018, and I got two invitations. One was to go to the Vatican to give a presentation to a bunch of like cardinals and stuff on prime number pattern, which turned out to be the shape of a photon. And literally on a mod 24, it looks like the exact shape of a photon of light. And it also looks like a cross. It looks just like a cross, a Templar cross, in fact. So the Catholic Church asked me to come out and present there. So I flew out to the Vatican. I presented there. And then I got another invitation from the Dalai Lama to come and teach the Dalai Lama this prime number pattern, right? So I'm thinking now, wait a minute, I've stepped into a different world, right? Mm-hmm. This is not the world I was in where I was, you know, career-oriented person and this, that, and the other in the pharmaceutical industry and medical aesthetics or in ophthalmology and the eye business, and now I'm finding myself in Dharamsala, sitting right next to Dalai Lama, teaching him in his house, prime number pattern. And he looks at me and he says, I think one day you will be able to prove higher consciousness mathematically. And I was like, 
whoa, what a what an epic moment. And yeah. there has been, you know, he has tons of people, scientists and everything to come and visit him. And I brought seven people with me, other physicists, mathematicians, and a stem cell scientist. And he asked the question, he said, do you believe that glass of water is conscious? And, and we said, yeah, we do, because it has feedback, it has memory. We know this from DNA, you know. And he was like, okay. And, it was, and he was so humble. And he was such like an open-minded person on everything. Because the guy has studied physics. He wrote a book on physics mm. called The Universe in a Single Atom hmm. as a Fractal. It's another as above, so below kind of concept. And I remember sitting there with him and he, he actually even told me, and this might kind of be surprising to you, may not. He said, you know, in my house in Tibet, I have the records of when Asa visited Tibet 2,000 years ago. Who's Asa? Jesus. Mm, Yeshua. Yeshua. So the name they wrote it as in their language was Asa, who was from Palestine. And he, and he actually told me of the records that they have where Jesus came, and not only did he come to Tibet, and he spent something like 12 years there. So this is that time period between the time he was 12 years old until he was 30 when his ministry began, right? There are records all over India where he visited Jainism, learned Zoroastrianism, learned Tibetan Buddhism, right? And was very much trained in all of those things as, as a monk, according to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. They have the records of that entire hmm. story. I was fascinated by that because when you go back to ancient Israel and you study what was the Old Testament about, the Decalogue, right? The Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. So you're, you know, you know, you probably know the Baruch, Atah, Adonai, Elohim, Melech, Olam, you know, know all of the Hebrew prayers, et cetera. I speak Hebrew as one of the languages I speak, although I'm not Jewish. Mm. But I find it to be a very fascinating language. No doubt. Numerically oriented and based. And when you actually go back and look at the time period of when Jesus was born, the language they spoke then was not Hebrew. It was similar. It's Aramaic, right? That was a period where the Pharisees and Sadducees had so much control and power over the land, right? It was ostensibly a colony that was controlled locally by theological sort of leanings. You know, they had King Herod also during that time, who was you know, pretty much kind of a tyrant, right? I mean, obviously anyone that goes around and like in the Bible story and has all the young children killed because they might be someone who might replace him type of thing, not exactly a good guy, probably. Yeah, you could, you could put him in the tyrant category. You could put him in the put tyrant him in the category. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what happened over there at that time, you had from Moses on the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, here are the things that you can and you can't do, right? You shouldn't commit adultery, you should not murder someone, you should not steal, right? Uh, you, you should honor your parents, all these things that are in the Ten Commandments. And then off of that, you've got Le Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that are giving you all these rules. And if you take it to the nth degree level, all the way to like orthodoxy of you know Judaism today, you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. You can only do so many things on the Sabbath, on Shabbat. This is the backdrop where Jesus comes in and says, in a very Buddhistic Fuck way, that. Uh, love everybody. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that thing you heard about, like, you know, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which was that Old Testament thing, you know, mm -hmm. that's, I know that was like, that's so, so yesterday, you know, here he was 
at the precipice of a change of an aeon, right? Going from what had been, you know, 2,000 years of Ares, right? Which was about wars and conquering, right? And then 2,000 years before that was a Taurus age. So we're talking about 2,160-year blocks of time across a 12, you know, period uh, precession of equinox, which is 24,000 years. 26,000 on the long cycle, 25,920, and 21,600 on the short cycle. So the closer we are to our sister star, Sirius A, right, and B, we're 8.6 light years from there. Time tends to go faster, right? You've seen how stars, binary stars go like this, and they kind of go through this mm-hmm. thing where they speed up. That's where we're now heading into, right? That's exactly the stage we're heading into. So you've got this backdrop of total duality. You've got this backdrop of total eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, your enemy should die, right? And without even recognizing that it's not really that God is saying that, it's they think that benefits them, right? They think it benefits them. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah, which is the messianic judge consciousness. Not. Messianic consciousness inherently turns the tables over of systems that are no longer functioning in the right way. And we're once again in the age of In that of messi- exact same In the age of messianic consciousness where it's time to flip the fucking tables. It because is. Because the, the logos of our time is no longer working and a new operating system needs to be applied. And, you know... This is this is where we are one one more time again, and uh, it's a it's a different time with different rules, and it's one of the things that I really appreciate about the deeper the deeper lineage of you know of Solomon that goes kind of underground because of the way that there's and and so this actually go leads into the ways and things are encoded because of the oppression of the status quo and the systems that be oftentimes religious but sometimes state oriented a lot of the most potent wisdom had to go underground. And that was like a time capsule waiting for a time where it could be actually unearthed and revealed. And so it's hidden in the Aramaic and Hebrew text. It's hidden oh, yeah. in, the, in the Song of Songs of Solomon. It's hidden in all of these places. And now, instead of it being carried through these codes, now it's time to, okay, now we need to decode the codes and flip the tables over and enter a new stage, which requires, again, the messianic consciousness, which is comes when one is in contact with their own divinity so that they can actually listen, listen to what God is speaking through their heart and say like, no, and all the knowledge and all of, all of that is synthesized, you know, th- synthesized in the heart. And they can say, okay, now is a time where we get to change the game now is the aquarian renaissance yeah and what an exciting time to be alive one of my favorite quotes is by ralph waldo emerson where he says if there were any one period in time one would desire to be born in is it not the age of revolution when old and new stand side by side and admit of being compared when the energies of all men are searched by fear and by hope and when the historic glories of the old can be compensated by the rich possibilities of the new era this time, like all times, is a very good one, if we but know what to do with it. <laughs> and I think that's where we are right now. Absolutely. We're at this stage where all these systems, if you think about the systems of society that are the self-arbiters of judgment, 
what are those systems? We have government, government that basically decides what is lawful and what is unlawful, right? With our court systems, what is allowed and what's not allowed. We have university systems that decide what is truth and what is not truthful, right? What is mistruth? We also have religions that determine what is moral and what is immoral or amoral. These three structures in society have become strictures on society. They all have become self-arbiters that actually diminish individual self-sovereignty on being able to determine those things for themselves. And they don't allow for a more unifying principle of perception that would allow for greater empathy in society also, because it's not in alignment with their narrative, right? Or with the narrative, the, the official narrative. This in the social conditioning of culture as well, you know, just like what the Toltecs would call the mitote, the marketplace, this kind of zeitgeist that exists yeah. that fosters all of these, you know, social justice things which operate under the principle of doing good, but are actually just spreading the same kind of shame, oppression, hate more often than not. Not that some of them haven't been beneficial and there haven't been good things that come out of it. It's important not to categorize anything, including that with judgment, because that's once again in the same game that it's in. Everything has its place and purpose. But when you look deeper, you see so many different levels where this has all been operating. And to circle back to where we started, a lot of what I'm seeing and I think a lot of people are seeing is the midlife crisis of a dying of a dying system in which they're saying, aha, there's problems. You know what'll solve the problems of control, oppression, shame, and judgment? More control, More <laughs> control <laughs> oppression, shame, and judgment. I had a Toyota Camry of oppression, shame, judgment, and control. And now if I had a fucking Porsche, central bank digital currency, and massive control, then we're fucking Gucci. No, I do think that's pretty funny. It's like, wait a minute, when when you know the Chinese government just announced yesterday they've got their version of their central bank, you know, digital currency coming out and it's quantum resistant. And I work in quantum resistant cryptography, right? And I was kind of laughing about that because these central banks who believe that the solution is more central control, and in China, taking it all the way to the perverse level of social credit scoring systems of course. that then determine what people can buy and what they can't buy and when they can buy it, et cetera, et cetera. And where they can go. And it's just yeah. going to, it's the, 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 it's, the process is going like to continue. How dystopian, I mean, yeah. can this stuff get, right? And that's kind of where we are right now. But the funny part is what people don't realize is the reason why people adopted cryptocurrency was because of this concept of decentralization, not mm. more centralization. So to your point, it's like more oppression control, right? And more shame and judgment. And and I think that is what we're all waking up to right now. So we're all talking about this, you know, great split. So yes, obviously we are now on the precipice of a major, probably very likely a, a meltdown, right? Of what we have considered to be the economy. But let's face it. I mean, when the first COVID package came out, I remember thinking, wait a minute, why are they sending me all kinds of money, right? Why are they sending it to all these people? And this is not, I, I didn't feel good about it. Something didn't feel right. I was like, this is, this is nuts. Because when you start adding it up, we've printed something like $7 trillion, almost $8 trillion. So it's over a third of the world's money supply was printed in the last two years. And, and you're surprised if you had a 30% or 33% dilution of a stock, 
you shouldn't be surprised when the value of each share goes down. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, I'm surprised that it hasn't gone down more, right? And now we've got this looming stagflation economy that's upon us. You know, just on Friday, the Fed increased by, you know, seven a point seven five of a percent point, right? Big increase. Big increase, and they're not seeing you know, any mitigation of the the pace of the hyperinflation we're now experiencing. It costs me 200 bucks to fill up my Ford Raptor truck, right? It's like in California, you guys don't have it quite as bad here. We have extra taxes that goes on top of everything. But but the point is that we are now on the precipice where we're seeing seemingly all of these strictures and structures on society seemingly disintegrate right in front of our eyes. We're watching it happen, but I actually see it as just an evolution of consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. There are no coincidences. Mm-hmm. I believe that everything in the universe is totally patterned. I make a random number generator, and yet I believe that the word we say and whatever we call randomness is really just our inability to perceive God's pattern that's there. It's underlying everything. It's just outside of our zone of perception. We're not at the expanded awareness. If we could see all perspectives, then we would be truly ascended. We could look at it the way that a creator could look at it. Mm -hmm. Maybe we are, and we've just put ourselves in this limited construct for the joy of returning to that consciousness. Yeah. And here we are. And here exactly we are. And here we are. You know, one of the things that you talk about is... And you, you know, you identify as a polymath, which very much you are. And for people who don't understand what that is, it's the idea of the Renaissance man. It's the idea. I actually took the moniker for my first podcast start as the warrior poet. And I, you know, studied Socrates and, you know, Musashi and all of these people who trained in the martial arts, but also in cultivated the arts of philosophy and mathematics and calligraphy and all of these different things to help synthesize, you know, what Robert Greene actually calls the Da Vinci effect on perhaps the greatest polymath of all time, or at least mm-hmm. that, that's, that we're aware of, Leonardo da Vinci, who synthesized all of this different information. And you talk about this in your show, Codex on Guy, which was great, about how we've really, because of, I think, the industrial revolution, the mindset, and all of this, the specialization of everything, we've lost the people who synthesize all of this information together, which is a process that's necessary for the evolution of the brain, First of all, and going back to your mm-hmm. idea of the necessity of studying geometry, which I want to go into more, but just the necessity to understand at least a bit about everything mm-hmm. so that we can actually chart our course, because everything is happening in a silo right now, it seems. I think what we have done, it's so funny, <laughs> you know, I was at uh, ASU speaking at the 75-year anniversary of my business school that I went to, and um, it was great because... You know, here I was at the school. I didn't think I was going to be like this guest of honor at the thing too, which was crazy, right? I would go to this dinner, there's thousands of people there. I'm like, wait, I'm sitting next to the, at the table, the main table. I'm like, whoa, what's this all about? So I'm talking to the, the provost of the university. And she says to me, oh, you know, we're working on this thing in math here at the university. I'd like to possibly get you involved with if you'd like to be involved. And that is changing the curriculum of mathematics to teach it more like a language, Right, and we're working in, in concert with Cambridge University. I thought, oh wow, that's cool. You know, I teach a course called the Etymology, which is a linguistic way of looking at. I speak eight languages, and I looked at math as a language. 
So I rewrote the teaching of it as a language. Mm-hmm. And it's changed. I can't believe you how... I can't believe how satisfying it's been for me to get thousands and thousands of letters from people saying their entire relationship with math has changed. They see it now as a language of communication that a human being, I don't even consider myself a mathematician. I consider myself just a human being who's learning the language of the universe right. that I live in. That's it. And watching people shift their perspectives on how they see math, going from hating it to, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. And the universe is always talking to me now, synchronicities, seeing number sets, et cetera, and being able to help them interpolate and extrapolate what that might mean for them at that point in time in their lives. And then also applying it to, you know, front and center normal geometry and, and, and mathematical equations and some algebra. It really helps change their connection to their existence. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at it, though, our school system, you know, <laughs> It's like, oh, everything's broken. Let's give it more judgment, more shame, you know, more of the same. Let's just pile on more of the same stuff. specialization. We've done the exact same thing. And we look at China and we say, okay, China's our competition in a way here in the United States. And I don't really see it that way. I lived in China, but we say we need to focus only on math. We need to focus on math and science in the schools. And... They think by cramming more math and science down people's throats that we'll do better in our standard test scores. Actually, the opposite is true. Wrong. Guess what? If you go to China, what you'll actually find is that you've got a bunch of people over there that, yeah, that are really good in math, but they're equally good in music. I I remember I lived in Laguna Beach, and my next-door neighbor was this Vietnamese family that uh, was a uh, cosmetic dentist and his wife is a gastroenterologist. And they had two kids. One of them was like 13, the other one was 15. And I would listen to them both play piano like all afternoon, right? They'd stop by about nine o'clock, but they would just pound on that piano all day. And they're playing like major stuff, like concert level pianist type stuff. I later found out that I thought they were in high school. They're in med school. At UCLA, mm-hmm. right? And they aced all their math tests too, which you don't find a lot of doctors who are really good in math. It's just like you don't find lawyers that are good in math very mm-hmm. often. But they're like playing piano and it's because the mind, across the mind center in the exact same spot. So on the right brain is music right here, right above the temporal region, the temporal lobe. Right on the other side of your brain is the, the center for mathematics, so in the left brain, if I'm right-handed, center for music is exactly the opposite of it. And where does geometry sit? Right in the center. Hmm. So geometry is right where your pineal gland is. That's why when you start to draw geometry, it exercises the muscle right around the pineal gland, the pituitary gland. That's when you start to build this Merkaba that then turns on and you actually start to get access to a field, an Akashic field. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you can't be imbalanced. It's like an athlete. You're an athlete. If you only worked out half your body, how good of an athlete would you be? Or worked it out in fixed patterns of movement, like with all the 
Cybex and Nautilus machines that came out in the 80s and 90s where you're just in super fixed patterns and right. then they're creating imbalances. You're just doing the same motion. Over and over. Yeah. And then you get out on something where it's actually testing your body in, in the dynamic field of competition and actual athletics and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So if you think about that, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the Popeye effect. Remember you'd see Popeye and you have this big, you know, arm like yeah. right here, like this giant <laughs> arm, but then the rest of them look kind of like scrawny and... You want to be a balanced athlete above and beyond all else. And to be the balanced mental athlete, you have to understand music to be able to integrate mathematics. And by the way, our brains work like a spiral. So the more, like when I'm trying to solve a big problem mathematically and discover some new mathematics, for example, I don't try to go at it just by studying more math. I'll never find it that way. I go into music, I go into physics, natural sciences, I go into art. I'll start drawing something artistically. When I can start to bring the balance up of my overall mind centers, each one is becoming exercised then through this context. That's when I'll discover some new math. Mm -hmm. That's when I'll discover some new physics. That's when I'll discover something that has potentially a profound impact. So what we've done is by through this hyper-specialization thing, we've cut all the music programs. We've cut all the artistic programs. We don't fund them anymore because it's not driving hardcore test results. But the fact is that it's that music and the arts that will actually bring the better mathematical results out. And this has been, this knowledge has been lost. And if you go into history... Who were all the great philosophers in the Greek period? Aristotle and Socrates and, yeah. Right. So I'm a big fan of Plato, right? I'm a big fan of Pythagoras. I'm a big fan of Socrates. I'm a big fan of Aristosthenes and Democritus and all the many, many different philosophers. So we refer to them as philosophers. Today, we have a degree that you can get doctor of philosophy. I was a bachelor of philosophy. Philosophy right. and classical civilization. My two Philosophy majors. and classical civilization. So today in university, the definition of philosophy is totally different from what it used to be. Mm -hmm. Just like the word mathematics used to mean something entirely different than it means today. Do you know that in Plato's time, mathematics meant all learning, <laughs> not the study of quantity or the science of quantity. It was Aristotle who changed it because Aristotle wasn't as much into geometry. He wasn't as much into the mathematics side, even though he was one of the protégés of Plato. They had kind of their disagreement. He's sort of like, you know, in, a, in that context, he was like in opposite sense. You know, you've got Carl Jung and you've got, and you've got Freud, mm -hmm. right? You could say, even though it was a different opposite mentor-mentee relationship, you had Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle was a botanist who liked to classify things in narrow categories. Right. Right. So phylotypes, right? Very, very narrow categories for plants and flora and fauna. Well, you've got Plato who says, oh, all is number. Yeah. He was, he was the mystic. Same with Jung, more of the mystic. Yeah. He's like, you know, I went in this cave and it was like allegory of the cave and I saw all these shadows and, and I realized that, well, wait a minute, there's a whole world out there that and it relates to the realm of forms. Yeah, it's, all, it's, like it's like David and Joseph as well. I mean, you see this pairing as well, where this like kind of mystic, wide open mentality then goes into someone where someone wants to just codify everything and simplify it all in, in this kind of separate way. But would you be surprised to know 
Pythagoras, Plato, or equally artists and musicians? I wouldn't. See, philosophy was something that you would achieve and attain after you started to master all of the different arts and sciences. Philosophy was an end result. It wasn't just starting by studying rhetoric of what other people said and thought. It was coming to those conclusions philosophically through a broad matrix of understanding of information, which then brings your brain to a balanced position. So most people think that our brains are, are radio. I mean, most people believe that our brains rather are hard drive storage devices. You know, it's like I've got a, a, a hard drive storage on my computer. I'm going to pump as much stuff in that thing as I can until I find out there's not any more space and I got to figure out something's got to go out of there, right? Or I'm going to expand, get another hard drive when well, we can't get another hard drive. Our brains, I don't believe, are that at all. I believe our brains are actually radio receivers. And the way we learn how to attenuate, how do we titrate that signal to its perfection is by learning how to balance that muscle as an antenna. Mm -hmm. And once we can balance that muscle as an antenna, the only way to do that is by getting to learn each of these, learn a little bit about everything. Yeah. Right. Get a broad perspective. And in order to do that, you have to open up your mind to seeing and feeling other people's viewpoints and perspectives. See the world through a poet's eyes. See the world or feel the world through an artist's eyes. And, you know, there's a great saying that I love to, to use all the time, which is when the, when the heart thinks and when the mind feels, the river of wisdom flows. Wisdom is a result of this study of all these things, a, a lifetime of curiosity. And it shouldn't end. You know, these were all guys, we stopped studying geometry when we we're in 10th grade. Literally. Literally. Geometry to them was a lifetime pursuit. Sure. Plato discovered the platonic solids, right? You start going back through Archimedes, discovered the Archimedean solids and categorized all of them so we could have reference points of our thought. This was only achieved. Discovery of mathematics and geometry is achieved as a result of this philosophical result, right? It's not because I studied rhetoric or I studied Nietzsche or I studied these other people. That's a great pursuit too. But philosophy, by definition, changed. Just like the word mathematics used to mean the study of all learning because it was the language of all learning. It was all his number. It was Aristotle who came and said, no, 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 it's just narrowly the science of quantity. One of the previous podcast guests I had, uh, John Verveke, he talks about the difference between philosophia, the love mm -hmm. of wisdom, mm -hmm. versus philonikia, which is the love of victory. And mm -hmm. we've, we're in the era now where we're, we've played out the love of victory, the love of being better than somebody else and, and returning hopefully to this love of wisdom and these fundamental principles that you're talking about. All right, if you love wisdom, how do you get your brain to a position where you can receive wisdom and get your heart to a position where you can receive wisdom? And this is, like we said, this spiraling multi-dynamic way in which we do it. I mean, I had the foolish enterprise of trying to understand how to master the mind. I was going to write a whole book about it. And then I abandoned 60,000 words three times. I tried, I tried this 
Because I ultimately realized after sixty thousand words, three times, jeez, three times, <laughs> That's yeah, a long book. It's yeah, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of attempts at this, but there was no way that I could actually find a point where the mind, going back to the mind as a receiver, where the mind was separate from capital M mind of the entire universe. So by saying master your mind, I was basically saying I'm going to write a book called Master the Universe. I was. And it never worked. <laughs> of course it didn't work. Yeah. But it was very instructive for me. That practice of, of doing that helped me to know for sure my own gnosis. Like, oh, I get it now. I get it. There is no way that you can separate your mind from your body, from the collective mind, from the field of mind, from God itself. You know, you can't separate that. And so in that practice, I, I don't consider it a loss, even though it was a lot of labor that's not going to get a lot of tangible result. My publisher certainly has had to wait quite a long time because mm -hmm. I'm going to be writing a radically new book now. <laughs> but it's it's these fundamental principles, if we understood them from the start, you know, basic operating manual for the human body, music and breath and and how the you know the the mechanisms of the heart and mind and heart brain coherence and all of these things and how to actually grow i mean this is what needs to be applied in you know post-revolution you know post-renaissance into ground up thinking from you know from right from the drop so that that's what i'm so excited about yeah that's that's because what that's what happening right now it is it is and people all around the world like yourself right and and so many people that i've met are building that new architecture right and you will be writing that story i, I see that you will write that story that will help many, many people because people ask me all the time, it's like, okay, you find all these hidden things, but why was it all hidden? And I'm like, but see, that's the best part. It was hidden so it could be found. <laughs> right. You know, everything that we experience is funny. It was Henry Ford that said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you'll be right. <laughs> yeah. And we all know people that literally just can't get out of their own way to see the positive aspects of something, right? And no matter what happens to us, it can either be the best experience or the worst experience. It really comes down to our choice. Because I can name every single bad experience I've ever gone through at the time I went through it, quite frankly. I now look back on them all and say, it brought me to here and it was the best thing that ever could have happened. And it just took that mindset shift. So if we can help get people in that mindset shift and then start to create new ways, new systems, and that's what I'm dedicating my rest of my life to, right? Helping to establish, I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to be a boss. I don't have any desire. I've already, I've founded so many companies. I've done enough. But what I hope to be able to do now is just to help provide a different perspective that might be broad might be very broad. And hopefully through the lifetime of curiosity that I've had, because I've always been curious, to be able to learn these different things and then also discover new mathematics and geometry. I tell you what I'd love to do, I, I would be very happy sitting in my house most of the time and just discovering math. Hmm. And which, it's, which means that you have to be playing music. And, and I have to be playing music poetry. and I have to be reading poetry and <laughs> writing poetry yeah. and feeling love. Yeah. Right? Feeling from the heart space because the heart is what will also open that up this is the heart brain consciousness it's represented in buddhism by the diamond shape it's called diamond level consciousness which then opens the rainbow body 
And this is when we have this aura that's like literally balanced rainbow all around us. We're in full acceptance and full love of the world around us as well as ourselves. I don't think the world is a tough place because people hate each other. I think the world can become a challenging place because people don't like themselves. They loathe themselves. They, they all feel like they're not good enough. You know, men don't feel good enough and men, women feel like they're too much. Or, they're, or we're comparing ourselves to someone else and trying to, instead of celebrating our radical uniqueness as one unique face of the infinite prism of the divine in which our own uniqueness is our pathway to actually see clearly from our own perspective, which is what the divine actually wants, which is to see through our eyes. Yes. Wow, we... I want to know your story. Tell me more. Tell me more about your perspective, says the divine. I love you. Your story is the most important story I've ever heard. Right. Tell me more. What do you see? What do you see, my child? What do you see? Yeah, just like a father who really cares. Yes. Talking to, yes. you know, a father or mother talking to their child. What do you experience? I want to see it through your eyes. We are the universe observing itself. We, I understood recently in a, in a psychedelic journey that was very powerful for me. I understood that this is a, this is a very personal, personal revelation. I understood that um, there was some way in which I was unwilling to receive, receive the love of the universe that was all around me all the time. And it, it broke my heart when I understood that. And my wife was there with me, Vailana, and she said, you know, why? Like, why? Like, why aren't you willing to receive? Like, receive fully. And what came out of my mouth shocked me. I said, it's, it's a grievance with God. It's a grievance with God because when you receive fully, that's the greatest gift to the giver. That's where when you receive, it's giving back. It's like, ah. Because when you give a gift, what is the thing that you receive? Yeah. You receive... The receiving yeah. from the give, the giving and the receiving become collapse into one unity. And I was not willing to give God back the gift of my receiving because I had a grievance with God. And my grievance with God was because I had projected God onto parents, onto other figures, paternal-like figures in my life who'd let me down, who didn't look at me like we were just saying and say, tell me your story. Yeah. Tell me more. They didn't, they didn't say that. Of course not. They're just people. They're just doing their best, and this consciousness wasn't around. So I had projected my divinity, my understanding of divinity on all of these people who had let me down, and then therefore I had a grievance with God saying, God doesn't care about me. And so I wasn't willing to actually receive because I was withholding through a petty act of vengeance towards what I deemed God because of all of the projections that I'd made. And so I understood that the the remedy was then to remove all of the, to take all of these projections of all the places where I'd projected the divine and say, no, 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 you know, mom, dad, all these friends and teachers, like you did your best and I love you for that. But let's push all of that back to the divine and know really what the divine love is, you know, really what that, what that feeling, what, but truly the true, the true divine is saying. And so it's beautiful. And in that, I was like, oh, okay, okay, I get it now. 
I get it. And I can't say that snap my fingers and all of my everything changed, but that deep understanding was was really potent. And you know, I think it's we can't help but project divinity upon these figures in our life. But if we can actually have a better understanding of the actual divine, then in, instead of projecting it on all of these people who will let us down ultimately because no one's going to be able to be that, but really understand what the totality of the divine is, I think that's where we can get back to looking at the face of God rather than looking at other different faces and trying to see, you know, trying to project the entirety of divinity on the flawed, broken vessels that we all are. And of course, the light of God is in everything. So we can, if we look carefully enough, we'll see it all. But that's part of the art. That's actually probably what so many of these Teotihuacan and pyramids and all of these things were actually trying to yeah. teach us how to do, right? I love how you just said the totality of the divine. Because I I went to dinner about a year and a half ago with my best friend. His name is Boaz. Funny, right? I mean, there's two, an interesting name. It's uh, from the time of King Solomon and also King David and and the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon had two pillars on the outside. One was called the Boaz, and the other one was called the Jachin, right? So Boaz means in Hebrew, in him there is strength, right? And and you've got these two bronze pillars that went very, very high up for that building, which was this, you know, all with golden ratio proportions and everything. And while I was having dinner with him one night, and and he's uh, he's from Israel, but he's been living in the States for a long time. And he said, Robert, you know, he goes, I think it's time for you to embrace your feminine. And I said, well, what's the context that you're saying that? And, um, and he said, well, he goes, it's time for you to, you've been working and working. You've been sowing. It's time for you to reap. But you won't reap the harvest until you can embrace the divine feminine within you because it is a masculine orientation to sort of take, right? It is not a masculine orientation to easily receive. So men so often have a hard time accepting compliments. And that's just like the analogy you gave of someone giving you a gift. What's the way to receive a gift? Well, you just express gratitude for the gift. Mm. But so many men will say, oh, no, you know, when someone throws a compliment their way, they'll say, you know, oh, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. Da, 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 da. And that sort of just deflection, diversion. Yeah. When the way to accept a compliment is just to receive the compliment and say, thank you so much. That means so much to me coming from you. Or to receive a peach. Or receive whatever, right? We just like can't receive, receive that from God. Yes. And, and so the thing is, is that we feel like we have to work for everything. Yeah. It's a very masculine trait. I got to toil. I have to suffer, damn it. I've got to work my ass. Even when we're working out, it's like, I got to feel the pain. I got to tear all the muscles and everything. And then I know that I'm alive. And, you know, in, in my work world, people used to say, dude, you like to take risk. And, and I did, you know, I, I could, I had a super high tolerance for risk and 
I had to analyze that one day and I said, why do I like to take risk like that? Not like crazy risk, but calculated risk. Sure. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, if I'd gone into a different line of work, let's say I wanted to be, you know, someone who climbs El Capitan, <laughs> right? Or Mount Everest. Would I still take those kinds of risks? And I determined that I would. Because there's something about being on the edge of that cliff. If you've never been rock climbing, it's a pretty terrifying thing. But there's something about being on the edge of that cliff that brings you to this place where you know you're alive. Mm -hmm. You sleep on this knife so that you can experience what it's like to be alive. And that is a very masculine thing. It's also part of embodying responsibility and providing for family. And I remember the day my daughter was born and I held her in my arms. I made it one minute before her birth. It was in my TED talk. And the next day I was like, okay, I got to get back to work. Mm. Not because I didn't want to spend time with my daughter, but because I had this mantle of masculinity and responsibility just descend upon my shoulders. And dude, you got to like, provide. Just like a mother feels this strong urge to nurture and be a mom. Part of being a father is to provide and to manifest. So I immediately went into that mode without even doing it consciously. So from that point in time, all the way until my friend sat with me and said, you need to learn how to receive. You need to embrace the feminine within you. That was like a wow. Because then I realized, you know what? I wasn't good at receiving. Mm. Because I felt like I had to suffer and I had to work in order to win. So it wasn't Sophia, lover of wisdom. It was lover of victory, Philonikia. And that was exactly it. So I think that's a beautiful thing. I think today men are so confused <laughs> on what's allowed in society sure. and everything. We're all like, what the heck, man? The world is not anything like it was when we were kind of growing up. And if you say something just slightly wrong, you know, everyone gets so hyper offended. And I think that that's, again, if, if you get so hyper offended at something, that's your issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The world needs to learn how to like, Get over things and stop being so, you know, judgmental of themselves because that's ultimately where it comes from. It's they're judging themselves. And so then it becomes this vocal, outspoken kind of attack on society where it's not even intended. For me, nine-tenths of the law is intention. If someone doesn't intend to, like, hurt you, maybe they're just stuck in an anachronistic way of thinking. They're not intending to 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 offend yeah. people. I don't even remember the last time I was ever insulted. I don't yeah, think I've ever been insulted. Because it's your choice. Yeah, but that was just the philosophy and perspective I took. It's not because I was a white guy, you know, who's part Asian. And no, it was just because I, I didn't perceive it as an insult. And I think the invitation is to, and I think the practice is, is, as you know, Rabbi Gaffney has been teaching me, I think it's in the lineage text, it's called Simsum, I believe is the name, and it's the liberation of the sparks. So even in these movements of people taking offense and the social justice and the, quote, woke culture, if you want, there's a, there's a spark that can be liberated from all of that, of like, 
the impetus for things to be right, for things to be just, for things to become in balance. And there's a way that even in some of these broken systems, like it's our, you know, it's it's our invitation to liberate the spark from all of these things, like liberate the light from the broken vessel of what's happening, all of the shards of broken glass that are cutting people and hurting people. But somewhere, somewhere there's a spark. And I think that's another way, another lens to look at this confusing time is like all of these sparks have emerged and they've been covered in thorns and covered in broken glass and poison arsenic. And they're there, but somewhere underneath there is a spark in every one of these movements and all of the racial movements and gender movements and all of these, there's a, there's a beautiful spark that's there. And if we can liberate that spark and clean the thorns and clean all of that, then that's what's going to contribute to this more beautiful world. As Charles Eisenstein said, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, but it requires that mystic level consciousness to liberate all of those sparks, move beyond the judgment of the thorns and the glass and the arsenic, but see, like, I love see that where the last spark part is. What you just said, move beyond the judgment of the thorns and the shards and the things that we perceive as negative. Yeah. I think a transcendent stage that we achieve when we start moving into non-duality because things come along with this. We're going through a global awakening right now, the throat chakra. This is, the throat chakra is all about order and structure. There are three levels of the throat chakra. There's a self-awareness level of the throat chakra. Then that transcends and goes up to a self-actualization level. But that's where manifestation starts to really come into play. And the voice plays a big role in manifestation of ideas, but it's still subjected to a time continuum. So you don't just like say, I will it to be so, and all of a sudden something exists. When you get to a higher level of transcendence beyond duality, where you don't even judge the darkness, in fact, you're grateful for the darkness. Mm. Because the night is darkest just before the dawn, and you recognize that the light craves the dark as much as the dark needs the light. That both are beautiful. That the universe is happening for us. It's not happening to us, but we have to be able to perceive that it's happening for us. Even the negative things that happen to us in that context become my opportunity for my greatest learning to realize myself, to feel that divinity. These experiences that we have, I, I look back on all the bad things that happened in my life and I say, that was the best thing that ever happened because it led me to this understanding of awareness even when it was so painful and difficult at the time. And I know that's hard. It is so hard. It was hard for me too. Of course. I went through terrible times like that. But with the benefit of time, I was able to look back and say, gosh, I'm so grateful that that happened. And, and the trick is, can you see that in the moment? Can you see it can in the moment? Can you be grateful in the moment that's rather right. than in hindsight? And that's the, that's the art of having, you know, hindsight is foresight. Oh, I will be grateful for this later, so let me be grateful for it now. But isn't that beautiful? When you, it, when you can get to that stage and realize even what's happening in the world right now, I'm grateful that we're having this darkness because that is bringing the emergence of light. The next layer of the throat chakra is self-transcendence. Yeah. And there's a new chamber in the Great Pyramid above the Grand Gallery and above the King's Chamber. We know there's a void space there. And we, with our research team, have lovingly referred to that as the magnum opus gallery that takes you up to the Theodorus. The Theodorus, Theodorus is the name that means gift from God. 
This is the third layer of the throat chakra, and it represents the return of miracles and magic. Let's go. Here we are. Let's go. So this is where we are. But the only way to get to that, and it's also not only a transcendence of duality, but a transcendence of time. Mm. This is when the massive remembrance starts to happen. And you've had some people, right? Many people, thousands and thousands of people every day. The more I open up to expressing this truth, the more the world around me expresses it back. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm speaking about this now. That's why I did the Codex as a television show. Because this whole purpose of us being here, just as I said at the beginning, the one divided itself in the many for the joy of becoming one again. We're going through a massive remembrance right now. It's happening all around the world. And by the way... And it's a democ... The beautiful thing is it's a democratized remembrance where everybody is getting access to this. Everybody. Like, and I think the psychedelic renaissance is playing a huge part in this. I mean, let's talk about some of this old hermetical wisdom of the importance of embracing polarity and how the dark craves the light and the light craves the dark. And you could go far deeper than me into, and, and maybe we should after I share my story, but all right, let's talk about the democratization of it. I go do ayahuasca. I have one of the most, actually the most challenging encounter with the darkest force you could imagine, the world crutcher, the manipulative devil, the satanic kind of mindset that was negotiating with me for my father's soul and stealing my heart and giving me a fake one in return and all of these different ideas. Also, a lot of, you know, playing with my own fear and all of this. And I managed to move through. It's a very long story and I won't tell it. I told it on several podcasts, Rogan's podcast and Fighter. And I've told this story before. But ultimately, I get to the final the final like kind of insight with this, which I end up floating up and I kiss the world crushing devil on its forehead and its eyes turn into heart emojis. Oh. And this was the synthesis to show wow, love, cool. show love to the, to the deepest darkness that I could find, show love to it. And in that moment there, everything switched and the light just rushed in, which was a sight, like a small voice. You know what in, in Hebrew they called the lahisha, like the light was just a whisper mm -hmm. and the darkness was a fucking chaotic, just, just discordant symphony of, of energy that was coming my way and just a whisper of the light. And then the light rushes through to create the balance again. And I see Christ come through. I see Christ come through and meet this satanic force. And they're looking at each other and I was like, oh shit, it's going to go down. <laughs> Battle of the light and the dark. And what happens? They rush to each other and embrace in a homoerotic kiss. <laughs> I could have, okay. Anyway. <laughs> and I was like, oh man. And they're just holding each other and just making love right in front of me. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> But this this wisdom, right? Like I love it. I could I would have never thought that. I've watched every movie that I've had. The dark fit the dark fights the light. The dark light fights the dark. This is what happens. I've fucking seen every Star Wars. I know how this plays out. It's war, you know? It's Jedi's versus Siths. And no, no, no. That's not what the wisdom showed me of the ayahuasca that I, you know, through the ayahuasca portal. And that's not what it showed me. It showed me a much, much deeper wisdom of the embrace of the both sides, the extreme sides of the pole. This is the beauty of a mother showing a child 
something very beautiful about how siblings can get along. Right. And and what you're describing is actually making me think immediately of that scene in Empire Strikes Back, right, where you've got Luke Skywalker on Tatooine, and he's there visiting Yoda, right? When 900-year-olds you become, look as good, you will not. You remember all this, right? And there was a scene where Yoda says to Luke Skywalker, he says, oh, you're angry because your ship just sank, so can you pull it out? So, you know, Luke Skywalker goes over and he's he's practicing making Yoda levitate and everything. He's got rocks levitating, but he, he can't get the ship out of the swamp. Mm-hmm. He starts to get it out. Everyone gets excited, R2-D2. Makes a little noise and everything. <laughs> Tries to get it out of the swamp, and then it falls back in, and he comes back. He goes, Master, it's too big. I can't do it. And so then Yoda goes over and you know zzz, lifts it out of the swamp, puts it off on the side, on the dry ground, and Luke Skywalker's like, in amazement. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And Yoda looks at him and says, that is why you fail. <laughs> right? Remember that? Yeah. And then, and then he directs him to go into this dark cave where he has to face his fears. And if you remember in the scene, Luke Skywalker goes in there and immediately is confronted in this hall of mirrors by Darth Vader. And it's a metaphor for him facing his own shadow, Mm. right? There's some serious hermetic wisdom in lots of TV shows, right? And one of the great shows that illustrates this that's only come out very recently is Foundation. Yeah. On Apple. Great show. Right. Great show. It's telling the same story of Atlantis. Yeah. Basically saying, and it's really freaky, right? This mathematician, Harry Sheldon, comes out and says, hey, guys, uh, we're going to be in 12,000 years of nightmare coming up here. So we're going to have to, like, uh, it's going to be dark ages. We're going to forget everything. We're going Our species is going to be all but wiped out. But we need to start collecting all of our knowledge and put it into this one cube octahedron. That's difficult to decode. That's difficult to decode. And all of the data is embedded just in the ratios of this cube octahedron, right? Which is funny because it's exactly that I just filed patents on a new compression technology, geometric compression, that uses the sides of any kind of geometric structure for like categorizations, for authorities, for viewing data, et cetera, as well as you know, you could break them all into right triangles mm. into smaller bits. So you could think of subsets and subcategories of data storage, right? So I was like kind of tripping out when I'm watching this. And I'm like, wait, I just filed patents on something very similar to this, like bizarre. But the whole story was put it in a cuboctahedron, it'll stand the test of time. And then when humanity wakes up again in 12,000 years, then they'll be able to start with a seedling of information, this is where we are now. And would that cuboctahedron be the Great Pyramid? Or at least one of them? <laughs> I think it absolutely is part of that. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. The cuboctahedron is, happens to also be the structure that defines light. It defines the vacuum. It defines black holes. It's the structure of space-time. But the Great Pyramid is a unique structure. And I only made it I haven't even put this in the codex yet because it's not in the second season. It won't even probably be in the second season, probably be in the third season. But is that so much more material we have? You know, mm-hmm. I filmed codex the first season a year ago in April. So, and now I'm starting to talk with them again about doing the second season. And I would have done it sooner. It's just that I got other things in life to do too. Sure. 
But basically what I just discovered is there's a lot of people that have wondered why is it the Great Pyramid has its exact slope angle? What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that happens to be the only triangle where the height of the pyramid proportionally, if I were to take the height and make that a diameter of a circle. So imagine a pyramid that's shaped like this, right? And then it's got a circle that's exactly the same height, right? So it's, it's side of it is on its base, it's tangent to its base, and then also tangent to the peak of the pyramid. So the diameter of the circle is the height of this pyramid. Guess what? It's the only triangle that will match exactly the area of that same circle. So this is not only about squaring the circle. It's about introducing the divine. So the divine is the triangle. But the triangle has to make itself into an isosceles shape, right? So it's not an equilateral triangle. Mm. It's an isosceles triangle in order to perfectly both square and triangle the circle. And for people who don't understand squaring the circle, just explain that briefly. Squaring the circle is an ancient Greek conundrum, right? So it probably goes way, way older than Greek. It's probably far, far back in Hermeticism. And it's the challenge of the Greeks believe that for something to be truly beautiful in its design, architecture-wise, whatever it was, you needed to be able to draw it based purely on ratio. That means you have no measurements. So you only use line intersections to be able to inform the other intersections you're going to make. So one builds upon the other. So the ancient conundrum was, okay, draw a circle and square that have identical areas. And of course, it's not an easy thing to do because how could you do that without measuring anything? You could measure it after the fact, mm. but you have to be able to do the whole thing without measuring it at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is an old challenge and you can only use a straight edge, which has no measurements on it. So like a ruler with no lines on it and a compass and that's it. Nothing else. Now, what I found is that that is a meditative practice. The, the process of working towards squaring the circle is something that you do to bring your mind into balance. I do it before I discover math. I use it as a meditative practice. I'll, I probably draw thousands. Like a mathematical koan of some sort. It, yes, it's, it's like, I remember when we were kids, we'd have to go up to the TV and like if you had an antenna on it and kind of like move the antenna and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. our body would be part of the antenna and we'd let go of it and it would go back to the white noise. <laughs> you know, we'd try to get this exact balancing type thing. It's the same kind of exercise, but you're doing it consciously. You're going into a meditative state and you are working to square the circle. And it doesn't matter if you actually achieve the perfection of it or not. It's working towards that perfection that matters. You're bringing your intention to this place where you're equally tapping into both left and right brain. It's both mathematical and musical and artistic and scientific all wrapped into one. And it's bringing in the balance of gender energy into your frame, into your spirit. Masculine being the square, feminine being the circle. Exactly. Masculine square, feminine circle. But the divine, that's another question. The divine is the triangle. And the only triangle that can perfectly match the area of the circle, and then through that doorway, use the same triangle. It becomes a cipher key on how to square the circle as well is the exact proportions of the Great Pyramid. <laughs> it was already known that the Great Pyramid was somehow tied to squaring the circle, but nobody knew that it was directly tied 
and it's irrefutable. You see it on paper. You see it right there. You can measure it on GeoGebra, the Google geometric software. Right. It's perfection. And that means that for us to achieve the divine, there's a metaphor built right within it because what you find is that there's a square that gets made off of this structure as well. That also is the squaring of the circle. But where the square has the same perimeter value as the circumference of that circle, it will only be achieved when you see an intersection of that circle with exactly where the square is coming down and where the pyramid line is coming up. All three lines will intersect exactly at the center of the circle. Meaning to say, finding the center of a square is easy. Finding the center of a circle, not so easy. Hmm. Very difficult. So the masculine must raise itself to the center of the feminine. Because imagine you've got a flat plane, you've got a circle here, you've got a square, and if they have perimeter and circumference that matches, the square is here, the circle comes all the way up to here, right? It, it has a much higher peak. The top of that circle becomes the point of the pyramid, right? But the exact line for where that square will then come across the side, across the base down here, is only going to be exactly where the pyramid line crosses it at the center of the circle. So the masculine must raise itself to the center of the circle in order to match the feminine and bring in the divine. And by the same token, the circle must bring itself down where the circle will intersect another circle that would be the, the circumference around the base that would then define exactly where the square sits and where the end of the pyramid would go to is in the exact same analogy, but in opposite sense. It's an orthogonal relationship. The circle must bring itself down to the masculine in order to perfectly square the circle and triangle it as well. Yeah, balanced unity consciousness, what Zach Bush says is the unfurling of both wings in, the, in all of these prophecies of the masculine and the feminine and the heart of the bird holding the synthesis between them, the alchemical rebus, all of these different things pointed together. And then we think of the pyramid often as like, ah, oh, some pharaoh with a big ass ego. <laughs> you know, just built this thing to show off, right? And because, of course, the amount of labor and the amount of like, why else? But, but our own mind can't understand that some, some consciousness expressed through some people with the authority to do this were creating something, knowing that the world was subject to all of these forces of control, oppression, distortion that would be able to destroy, distort, you know, change, alter change the text, you know, whatever, whatever was going to happen for their own petty self-serving biases. But if you created something magnificent enough with the clues and everything baked in, when the time was right, that would reemerge. That time capsule would become illuminated once again. And that's, I think, a big point of what you're making. And, and it's in so many different areas where now is the time for the ancient wisdoms, the mystery school wisdoms, the hermetical wisdoms, the alchemical wisdoms, now it's time for them to come to the surface. It now is. it's time and, for us to act on it. And this is just, these things were hidden by the polymaths. They were hidden by the philosophers. Because to be a polymath is to be a philosopher. And remember, mathematics didn't mean study of math as number, study of quantity of science, right? It meant learning. So poly means many. Math meant learning. Polymath is many learnings. That's all that is. So the doorway to become a philosopher was to be a many learner. And once you became a philosopher, then you got into esoteric and wisdom and mystery schools. 
So the Egyptian mystery schools is where all the polymaths philosophers went. Mm -hmm. They all went there. In fact, you must go there. It is part of the process of initiation. So Leonardo da Vinci went there. Plato went there. Pythagoras spent 30 years there. They all go to the Egyptian mystery schools to and, learn and, in the land of Cain. And Yeshua. And Yeshua went there. Jesus and John the Baptist both broke into the pyramid. They, they both went there. They both studied at the mystery schools. Do you know there was a mystery school that had lived, been in existence for almost 500 years that was closed down by Nazis when they occupied Egypt in 1944? Why was there a mystery school with the name of Leonardo da Vinci's School of Egyptian Mysteries? Why did that even exist? The reason it existed is because da Vinci, during his lost years of his life in Italy, spent three years, just over three years, in Egypt working for the Sultan of Cairo. He wrote about it in his compendium of his works after he died, which was called the Codex Atlanticus. It's in reference 1336 and 1337. It tells the entire story of, and it's written not backwards, because all of his texts are usually in backward mirrored text. So you'd have to look at it through a mirror to be able to read it easily. Mm -hmm. Although there is a good exercise to write backwards, because once you start writing backwards, it absolutely strengthens the other side of your brain that's your non-dominant side. Mm -hmm. So whether you're left-handed or right-handed, you use the opposite hand. So it's teaching you that ambidexterity, but at the same time, it's helping you see the mirror of consciousness because that's what you start to tap into once you find this heart-brain balanced awareness. This is another exercise to do. But he wrote this letter in forward text. So whenever da Vinci, because he always wrote backwards, whenever he writes forwards, it's encrypted. This was a draft letter, and it was titled, To the Devadar of the Sultan of Cairo, Babylon. And he tells the entire story how he's engaged by this sultan to be an engineer on a confidential project, right? Doesn't say whether it's architectural. It sort of implies it's architectural, but it doesn't say exactly what it was. Although what he does do is he goes through in very high detail his experience at Mount Taurus. Now, everybody believes that Mount Taurus must be a reference to the Taurus mountains that are in Armenia. In fact, Mount Ararat would have been one of those such mountains. This is where the Noah's Ark was supposedly, you know, up at the top of, landed after the flood. And he describes the town that he was in, a place called Kalindra or Calendar. There's no such town ever in the history of either Turkey or Armenia with this name. He was not referring to that. What you have to understand is that the original name of the Giza Plateau was Ras Tau. And if you read it backwards, it's Tau Ro. Another way to pronounce Tau, which is an, basically a Tau is a letter T, you rotate it slightly and it becomes Kai Ro. The bull mountain that he's referencing is actually shown to us in hieroglyphics. The original name of the Great Pyramid, among its names, one of them is Mer, and all three pyramids are Mer, Ka, and Ba. But the name of the Mer Pyramid is actually to the apis bull. The chevrons, right, and a bull. So you see two chevrons and a bull, and that is the original name of the Great Pyramid, which means Bull Mountain. So he was referring to 
the pyramid, the Great Pyramid. And in this, he even says it seems that they touch the sky and it's oriented in such a way that it has sunlight on its east and west side an equal amount during the day because it's perfectly situated due north. He's exactly described. It's covered in the most resplendent and gleaming white limestone is how he describes it. And he goes into a room or a cavern within this mountain, Bull Mountain, and the name of that, uh, you know, the cavern that he's talking about is this great cavern, which is actually a reference to the king's chamber. And he, right before you walk at the king's chamber, you have to bow, you have to sort of bend over. It's exactly 39 inches high. It's just one meter high, right? So we're not supposed to have a meter back then, but they measured it exactly as a meter. You, you kind of go in with your back hunched over. And he says he put his hand on his forehead, like waddling back and forth because it's about the same height as a bar. And he had this overwhelming feeling by his own description of going into this room of mystery and fear at the same time. You know, what was he, what was going to be lurking within that place in the darkness? What was he going to experience? Great fear and hope at the same time. And I remember the first time I went to the Great Pyramid, that's exactly how I felt. A mix of fear and hope. I'm like, what in the heck am I going to be dealing with here, you know? This is some like giant, giant dog man going to come out and get me or something. You know, I've spent now 11 nights inside the Great Pyramid. Wow. Um, and I've had some of the most incredible experiences of my whole life. They even gave me a key for it. And we've now discovered every trip I've gone on, we've discovered many, many, many new things. And I'm very friendly with the Egyptian authorities. Uh, Clearly. You know, the, I, I have a good relationship. You know, my last trip there, I got invited by... Uh, Dr. Waziri, who is the uh, the Secretary General of the Ministry of Antiquities, and he invited me to go to Saqqara with him, and we went down these rappelling ropes, and it's a totally new site. I couldn't post any pictures of it because they hadn't even announced it yet. They just discovered mummies of all kinds of animals and dogs and uh, tigers and I mean lions rather, and all kinds of different animals that had basically been mummified down there, and also lots hundreds of new mummy you know, new mummies that were not new for us, but, you know, newly found. And this place was like epic. It was like straight up Indiana Jones type experience. It was only about a month and a half ago that I went. But I have a good relationship with them um, because I'm not trying to introduce, you know, a whole thing that's antithetical to what they are all about, right? Or what they believe in or the way they look at it. In fact, the story that is being told there the Great Pyramid, is about Osiris. It's about Osiris. Are you familiar with the myth of Osiris? And yeah. Osiris was killed by his brother, but no one ever talks about why his brother killed him. Right? It's not really fair to his brother, to be honest, because his brother Set, you know, the often shown as having like this kind of hook-shaped nose, um, killed him because Osiris had an affair with his wife, Nephthys. So Nephthys would be compared today to Athena, right? Set would be probably compared to Hades, right? And you've probably got um, Aphrodite would be compared to Isis. So if you go through the Sumerian pantheon had seven gods in it. Then you had 12 in the Greek and the Egyptian and the Roman. And they're all sort of related, even up to the Norse gods as well, Norse mm. and, and Germanic. They just have different names for them, Thor, Zeus, right? Yeah. You've got these different names. Wotan is, is uh, Miercoles or Mercury or Thoth, right? The messenger god. 
So you got all of this stuff sort of playing out and the story of Osiris playing out. And Osiris is personified by the constellation of Orion. The three stars on the belt match exactly the proportion positions of the Teotihuacan Plateau pyramids, match exactly the proportions of the, the Rostau Plateau, which is what we now refer to as the Giza Plateau, right? The Chinese pyramids as well. You see this relationship all over the world with these ancient pyramid sites. And by the way, they were all built on the same units of measure too. For example, the pyramids in Mexico, the base of the Pyramid of the Moon, is exactly the height of the Great Pyramid, which is 432 long cubits, 1.75 feet to each long cubit. Um, when you look at the height of the, of the Pyramid of the Sun, it's 216 feet, right? And you'll notice these are harmonic numbers, 432, 216. They always sum to nine. They're geometric numbers, right? That same height is matching as well the Menkari Pyramid. So these are clearly harmonic relationships. And also point to a reality that, you know, Graham Hancock talks about, yeah, which is the post-Diluvian post world in which there was an advanced civilization that spread around the world coming from a common source, which is most likely also Matthias de Stefano remembering, singing his songs of Kem mm -hmm. and, and the dissemination of that knowledge post-Atlantis. Or you could assume that, all right, maybe that didn't happen and this was all just downloads from the collective unconscious, the capital M mind of God, either way. But most likely it was actually carried mm -hmm. wisdom that just spread all throughout yeah. the world and said, listen, we've seen the destruction that can happen when power becomes, you know, power becomes the operative, which is Matthias's story of the fall of Atlantis, or perhaps just the earth's natural cataclysmic nature. I think it's just the cycle. Whatever, whatever might be, of course, we weren't there. We don't know, but it fundamentally shows that in some way, this knowledge was spread around the world to be kept and to be rediscovered through the universal language of math and geometry, which then also pointed to the universal truths of our, the evolution of our consciousness. Yeah, and when, and when you think about that, it's kind of a mind blower because you look at the Pyramid of the Sun, it's 216 feet. Well, that's 25,920 inches. What's the significance of that? That's the long period of this you know, orbit that we have <laughs> with Sirius A in years. And by the way, if you just look up right now on Google, how far is the sun from the center of the galactic disk in Milky Way. It's 25,920 light years. <laughs> so how is it all so perfect? How is it all so perfect? I mean, when you think about pyramid of the sun, pyramid of the moon, do you know what the chances are of us getting a perfect solar eclipse would be? We're the only planet in the solar system that has a solar eclipse. Do you know that? Do you know how that can actually happen? How does that even occur? Well. What has to, ha has, has to be the case is the diameter of the two objects have to be in proportion the difference between the distance between the objects and the vantage point that you're looking at them from. So, for example, the moon is 2,160 miles as its diameter. Same number as the number of feet, 216, for the height of the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico. Exactly the same. Okay, so 216... 2,160. We double that, we get 432, right? The diameter of the sun is 864,000 miles, making its radius 432,000 miles. 
So wait a minute. That's a note A in Pythagorean tuning as well, by the way. So that means that with 2,160 miles as the diameter of the moon, we multiply that by 400 exactly, and we get the diameter of the sun. That's kind of a mind blower. Okay, so, but then is the distance in proportion 400 times also? And yes, it is. The distance on average is about 232,000 miles between Earth and the moon. You multiply that by 400, it turns out to be 93 million miles, which is the distance we are from the sun. The average of the aphelion and perihelion. The largest distance from the sun, shortest distance from the sun. That's kind of mind-blowing. So, all right, so let's take a pause here. So for me, this isn't mind-blowing because I've had the direct contact with my own sources, which again come through the plant medicine path, which I've been following with deep reverence for 23 years since my first initiation at 18 with psilocybin. And for me, I've understood and been received the knowledge that the divine expressed I am, which is the outward, the yang expression of creation of all things, the one becoming many, and that the sacred geometry, the divine intelligence, the logos, the word, all of it would figure itself out perfectly from that initial I am, from that, from that moment. So to me, it's like, yeah, of course, of course, I get it, like, of course. You know, and, and I think there's another interpretation where God's meticulously got his little, you know, got his compass and his thing and making all Geometry. this. Geometry. Yeah, yeah, making it. But it, it just flows naturally as the language that's contained within the sacred I am of the all, of the all mind, you know, of, of the source, right? Contained within that. So for me, it makes sense. But then there's got to be people, of course, listening to right now are like skeptical saying like, you're just making up random numbers. And, and as someone who's into mathematics, what do you think the probability is that all of these mathematics are random? That like, this is happening random. Is that even, is that even a possible hypothesis? No, no, <laughs> it's like, that's why I kind of laugh at that because it's like, no, it's, it's just not possible. <laughs> so, and, and if you don't believe it, just look them up, okay? Look up the diameter of all of these things. You'll find also that, because the, the sun has its diameter of, you know, 432,000 miles, is why the sun has a circumference that's the Euler number. It's 2.718 million miles. Uh, it's hidden in plain sight. I mean, literally in plain sight. We look at it every day. But the metaphor is more important to me. The metaphor that the moon is, from our vantage point, standing on Earth, the exact same size as the sun on average as we look at it. You notice that? Have you noticed that before? You look at the size of the moon, it's in the sky, it's at the silver color, you got the gold color, but they're basically the same size. Yeah. Don't you find that a little strange? <laughs> I don't know. So I think there's a, a metaphor there about how we perceive the feminine, the moon, and the masculine. Right? Masculine being relational to the sun. So what da Vinci did is he put on his squared circle. And by the way, it wasn't even a squared circle because he didn't match the area of the square and the circle in his very famous illustration. It's probably arguably the most famous illustration that we look at today. In fact, the Vitruvian if, man. Yeah, the Vitruvian man. If the radius is one unit of the circle, then the area for that circle should be pi because it's pi r squared, right? This is you know, radius squared times pi still equals pi because one, 
right? One is the radius value. Well, guess what the value is for the square? This is 200 years before this number was even discovered by Isaac Newton. It's the Euler number. The exact area. So artists throughout history, again, the problem of not having polymaths around, the artists throughout history are looking at it going, huh, that's pretty, looks good. Not even really thinking that the area doesn't match. It's not even close. Da Vinci was a lot smarter than that. <laughs> if he was trying to match the area, the mathematicians are looking at it, this is a joke. It's not even close. It's far away. 2.7 is very far from 3.14. Come on. What they didn't understand, though, he was striking a balance between a triangle. So a triangle, an equilateral triangle, from its center point to its top part of it, you know, of its tip up here, the apex, would be two-thirds the length. One-third the length is from the center point to the flat base of the triangle, right? If we take that exact same proportion and we use a weighted average value, so we take pi times two-thirds, the long portion, right? And we add it to Euler 2.718 times one-third. Guess what the result comes out to? Three. 3.000. Here we have two transcendentally rational numbers through a simple weighted average around a triangle coming back to the divinity of the number three. The trinity. The trinity. Hmm. So to me, the chances that something like this could happen, right? It's like... Here's another one. Do you know what the exact point inside of the sarcophagus is on planet Earth? If we were to measure it and look at it, it's at its degree measurement, right? So we're going to look at latitude and longitude. The latitude for the exact center point of the sarcophagus in the king's chamber is 29.9792. Degrees. That's exactly what it is. So 29979245 degrees. And that is the latitudinal reference to the geolocation of the Great Pyramid. Not just the Great Pyramid, but within its 13 acres down to one meter inside of the sarcophagus. Do you know that's the exact speed of light? <laughs> the speed of light is 299 million. 792,458 meters per second. Did you know that the Great Pyramid, the name of the Great Pyramid, one of it is Mer, which means light? It literally means pyramid, pyra, is a Greek word for fire, which was also used to reference light. Mid is like a mean or center point, the midpoint. <laughs> the mean of light? is the name of pyramid, and it's exactly on the geolocation, at which point in time we had no reference to latitude or longitude, if you believe the dynastic building of the pyramid, which would have been 4,500 years ago, approximately. But wait, okay, so let's just say that might be coincidence. Let's take the other longitudinal reference. So the longitudinal reference for the same spot is 31.1 three, four, two degrees. So that doesn't sound like anything special. It's not speed of light, right? It's not close to speed of light. But what is it? Well, if you take 31, of course, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be related to a circle or a sphere, right? Because degrees are always related to a circularity. 
So let's take 31.1342 and divide it by 360 degrees. And what do we get? We get 0 0.0864. 0 0.0864. Now, if you've got on one axis light, and you were going to say the other axis should probably be something related to dark, right? Sure. Light, dark. And doesn't time relate to dark? Isn't there something called like gravitational sort of time dilation? Did you ever see that movie Interstellar? Of course. Where they landed on that planet. They're only there for like 45 minutes and the big wave came. And then it was like 23 years went by. They went back to the ship. The mm -hmm. guy's all old waiting for them. Yeah. Remember that? How could you forget it? I mean, I, I interviewed Matthew McConaughey. He tells that story of when he goes and sees his daughter's videos and, mm -hmm. and that moment of realizing that all that time passed for him in an instant, but for in his life yeah. and what he lost in that relationship. Right. So you've got this time dilation effect, right? So gravity and time must relate to each other then. And every physicist would tell you that that's the case because you will have time effects you know, the time on Jupiter is different than the time here because the gravitational effect there is greater than it is here. So what is this reference of 864? Well, is it a coincidence that we have 86,400 seconds in every day? And that the sun's diameter is 864,000 miles? Now, if I could make a perfect time system and... I was going to construct it. I'd be like, okay, how do I geometer this shit out, right? I'm going to like make this thing. I'm going to have it relate to the thing that I'm going around and it's going to be related to its diameter. And then that's going to then resolve into every day of 24 hours, which comes out to be the exact relationship of the diameter of the sun, please. <laughs> so now the latitude and the longitude are light and time references. Really? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is this. The experiences that we're going through are self-imposed. We choose them. This is the higher order understanding. There's no boogeyman. We ourselves are the boogeyman. Mm. We all have to go into that cave like Luke Skywalker, face our fears, it's the internal, it's the same concept. Hope that you live long enough to defeat the villain, but not so long you become the villain. Yeah. This is the life we're living. This is the hero's journey to the, come to the realization that I chose it all. Mm -hmm. I chose it all. And with, the that, biggest, with the biggest capital I that there is in the whole right. universe. So, the, the one big I am. I am. So when I used to get really angry at the whole Donald Trump situation, what I'd force myself to do to break myself of the habit of getting angry about it is I would stop myself and I'd say, okay, sweetheart, every time I do that, just, just say, hey, or you know, give me some signal. And then I'm just going to sit there and say, I am that I am. The thing that I was judging negatively in him, I'm acknowledging that I am that. So then I tried to expand it. It got really funny in my office because every time I'd be like, oh, yeah, and like, and then I'd have to say it out loud. I am that I am. So that I would train myself to stop thinking in terms of judgment and start thinking in terms of integration. I am the thing 
that I'm judging. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly freeing because what it expressed to me was there's no mistakes. It's infinitely freeing if you, if you follow it all the way. Yeah. It, is, it is actual freedom, true freedom. It really is. And so that, I started to try to embody that. And that's when I started to learn how to receive. Hmm. That's when I started to learn how to be in touch with my heart. That's when I started to learn, feel emotions. Because, you know, for us as men, we don't, you know, we're told at a very young age, don't cry, don't do this, da, 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 da. And, and I had a great father, so I, I'm very lucky from that perspective. But he went off to Vietnam. He was in the Vietnam War. And, you know, we all grow up with the path that we ourselves chose. And my parents tell this funny story. I just had my 50th birthday a few years ago. I'm 53 now. And um, I was born in a hospital not far from me. It was more in northern Texas, up in Wichita Falls, Texas. And I was born in an Air Force base at Shepherd Hospital. And this hospital had this thing. Once a year, they would give a silver spoon. They would just by lottery give a silver spoon to one of the babies born. And I was that baby right, that, that got the silver spoon. I mean, they thought it was sort of funny. It shows up in the newspaper, you know, the silver spoon baby is this silver spoon baby and everything. And it's funny because I used to think that I struggled so hard for all the things that I've been lucky and mm-hmm. successful for in life. But maybe I just chose it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was embedded within my numerology and within my own zodiac chart because maybe I chose different things to learn, to deal with. And I'm grateful for all of it. I think that's one of the challenges with free will is we're looking at it from too limited a scope, right? Like I chose it is not the separate self of right now choosing it. It's the I, the infinite I, the unborn. capital, capital I. The unborn, the undying I that chose it and then chose the ability to choose otherwise as well. You know, all of the the choices that kind of move through this continuum of our life and the continued choices of of the I am in its fractal, in its ultimate fractal sense. It's so amazing when you think of it like that because then – when people come into your world, when you realize that it's a you inverse, the world is reflecting all around you and every person you meet is someone you will learn something from. They're there to bring you a divine message. If you will but know what to do with it, if you'll be there to listen and be present for that, every single person, an Uber driver, a person on the street, some random person you never thought you would talk to can become a sage to you and be a life-changing experience for you. One of the things that I try to express through my experience in plant medicine ceremonies is in the ceremonial context, let's say you're in an ayahuasca circle, the key, one of the key codes, the codex of of the ceremony is that everything in the ceremony is your ceremony. Whether that's somebody yelling, whether that's one time there was a party barge that parked outside in the beautiful ocean and was playing reggaeton in the middle of our final ceremony. Like everything (laughs) is part of the ceremony. Right. You know, and in that idea, ah, okay, this is part of my ceremony. Then you get to learn all of the lessons from it. And then if you extrapolate, all right, that's your practice ground. It's like playing sports. You practice a lot of things in sports so that you can learn them in life. It's not about the sport. Sport's fun. Great. 
But if you really pay attention, you can learn. Learn the ways that your mind will defeat yourself. Learn the ways that you're challenged. Learn the ways where you get selfish. Learn the ways where you're worried about your stats instead of the team victory. Learn all of these different things. Same with ceremony. When you apply that ceremonial context to life, life is ceremony. Ah, everything is happening as an opportunity for me. Then that changes your whole context. And at that point, you can actually facilitate this constant learning, constant learning, no matter what's happening. The universe is always happening for us. It's our perception when it's polarized in judgment that keeps us from being able to see that it's there. But as we start to transcend that duality consciousness and move into the next zone, and it's okay that the backdrop of the world becomes somewhat dark. I mean, the thing is, is we don't want to be the hammer that's always looking for the nail, right? That's not what we, we have to just recognize that the darkness needs to exist. If you notice that magic, right? Always like I, I was watching this, there's a show now on uh, Amazon, uh, on Amazon that basically is on prime, basically is called the wheel of time. And it's got an Ouroboros. It's like a symbol of a snake that's eating its tail, right? So I'm watching this show. I'm like, okay, this would be an interesting thing. I was kind of just chilling out, doing my geometry. That's what I do. Like my wife will watch TV while I'm like drawing something crazy. Mm -hmm. And because I can't just watch TV. <laughs> I got to like, you know, <laughs> do I, I a little understand. bit there. So I'm listening. I'm following the storyline and everything. And they're, they look like they're in the Middle Ages. So they're like, you know, wearing the same garb and clothing from like, you know, maybe 11th or 12th century or something like that. And then all of a sudden, you see them stumble upon this ruins of this place, and the ruins are in New York City. So you're like, hmm, that's kind of an interesting like, thing they threw in there. Like, wait a minute, is this in the future or is this in the past? And then they end up stumbling upon the ruins of Florence, right, far, far in the future. And so it's kind of a trippy mind concept because when you start thinking about the notion that and we're all going to start remembering now our incarnations. And we will eventually all be able to experience them all simultaneously, which is a mind bender, mm. right, when you think about it. Um, I've tapped into many of my past lives before. And what's really cool about it is you can start to engage the knowledge that you collected in that lifetime as well into this lifetime. And you start finding things that you left for yourself as encryptions through yeah. time. Yeah. It's, that's really mind-bending. I had a mind-bending experience recently. And, and I think one of the key takeaways here is there's lots of ways where we can distort our understanding, right? Like mistrust of authority is actually pretty justified at this point. But then you take it too long and you look too deeply into the abyss and then all of a sudden you become a flat earther. <laughs> right like like you're like nope everything's bullshit and like you know and then <laughs> and, and like you see these phenomena and i see these happening amongst people i'm like, like we do live in a holograph by the way i believe right it's a holograph most physicists actually say that's a holographic principle of the universe you know it's a projection of mind consciousness max planck said there is no matter as such right everything has is underlined by you know an, an intelligent mind we are that mind we're just fragments of it. Again, we are the one divided into the many for the joy of becoming one again. And I think what everybody sort of gets stuck into is like, well, 
I'm good and they're bad. Yeah. Well, the one thing that we should only be concerned about is what we see and feel inside ourselves. It's by looking within that we find and start to learn how to transmute all of the demons and the difficulties and everything. And whenever I see people that, like sometimes I'll post something on hermeticism and some will go and, and say, oh, you're, you're a Mason, you're a Luciferian. They go on this total rant, right? And then I go back and look at their page and it's usually some picture of like, you know, a demon is their profile picture. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, that's trippy. Like what, what am I supposed to learn here? Because whenever we have these things that trigger us, that's the opportunity to learn. So there's a learning embedded in this. I have to learn to transmute and learn to transcend judgment and just accept and love. I gave a TED talk on replacing fear in my life with gratitude. That's a doorway. That's like a, a very important portal people can move into in the early stages of their awakening. But now the next TED talk I will give, if and when I get a request to do it, is going to be replacing judgment with love, unconditional love and acceptance. Mm of everybody and everything, even the time around us. Because we all get stuck in this. We all think, oh, life will be better once I've achieved this or once this has occurred. We're placing conditions on our existence right now and calling it imperfect without just accepting the perfection of the imperfection. Right. We're here for the reason to learn. And that's the beauty of life. And it's like, what a great place. I mean, I have a feeling like we all die and then we go back and we're like, Damn it. You know, I want to go back. I want to do this again. I want to do this again. Of course. Of course. And, and that's how it really feels. But now as we move into this next stage where people are starting to tap into their prior lives. And it's going to accelerate big time. Absolutely. I mean, this year, you know, Vailana and I, at, you know, in New Year's, we're out in Miami and we said, all right, this year, this year's the year of miracles. This year's the year of miracles. We declared that. Wow. And we're like the I opening the opening of ourself to the magic and to the miraculous happening. And we've experienced lots of minor miracles this year so far. And, you know, the miracle is the thing that cannot be explained. You know, ultimately it's one way to look at it. You just can't explain it. And we had recently last week, just, just last week in Sedona, and we've experienced many things, but things that were also in the realm of our understanding of possibilities, miracles of human consciousness and growth and activation and mm -hmm. the ability to channel wisdom, access things, mm -hmm. things that were familiar enough that they weren't miraculous. And there was this very poignant moment. And I think what I was talking about with the flat earthers is you go down this pathway where you're denying the miracle and denying the magic of everything that you talk about. It's a diversion, but what we really need to do is take that same energy of, all right, let's be messianic with the status quo and understand our participation, our co-participation in the miraculous nature of this hologram simulation, whatever you want to call it. Again, it's linguistics, but that we are in the, the co-creators of the universe, and there's things that can defy when we believe it, but it requires our belief. It requires us 100%. to be in a field of belief where that's possible. Matthias and I did a podcast, Matthias Stefano, where we talked about in his memories, they were able to do things mm -hmm. that everybody just believed were possible. They could sing the stones into a different vibration in order to help move them. Tibetan to create these, do that with their trumpets. These, yeah. these monoliths, right? Mm -hmm. So these things were all possible because the field of belief around them made them possible. And without that field of belief, they were impossible. So we had a very close group of our inner circle and we're stepping into the experience of the miraculous. 
And we had this very strange experience closing this final week, this magical week we had in Sedona, where my friend Caitlin brought a menorah. Mm-hmm. It's not Hanukkah. We mm-hmm. called it Vailanica because it was Vailana's <laughs> birthday. <laughs> and we were going through. And so we going through, we're giving these intentions and these kind of, it's this beautiful little ceremony around the fire with the menorah. And then we finish and the candles had all the candles had all burned out some had broken very strange interesting things were happening to the menorah things were like whoa that was weird candle broke in half but it stayed on fire in the middle part even though the top part broke in flame we're like how does that work that Mm -hmm. was weird but maybe there was some wind and there's things that we all explained and then we watched there was two candles one was mine and one was my sister blue who's been on this podcast that stayed lit and we looked and they were staying lit and there was no wax. It was just the wick. The wick had just fallen down. There was absolutely no wax. And just the wick of the candle was lit. No wax. I mean, we're looking in the hole, looking all around for wax. There's none. And we're like, this is a miracle. We're in the presence of a Jewish miracle here. I mean, that's where Hanukkah was based. It was mm-hmm. based on the fire that sure. continued to burn beyond the point where the oil was there. Like the lamp stayed lit. We're looking at it. We're looking at it. And it keeps going and it keeps going. All the other candles completely burned out. When the wax goes, the candle goes. But for some reason, the wicks, which should, without wax, just burn up. That's what they do. But they stayed lit. And we're looking at it and we're looking at it and it keeps going. And we're like, what are we going to do? Are we just going to stay here forever? <laughs> you know, like, because we didn't want to leave. We felt like we're in the presence of a miracle. Like, what is going on? And then we stay there for a long time. We're talking about it. We're talking about how this is a miracle. And then finally, our rational mind takes over and we're like, we have to explain this. There has to be a reason why this is happening. We see that there's no wax, but there must be a reason. It must. And then it goes, poof. <laughs> exactly. The moment we tried to explain it, which was our disbelief that it was a miracle, the moment that that shifted collectively, fire goes out. So it's so funny you say that. That's making me, it's triggering me in a positive way on so many things. In order to be in a world in an age of miracles in this Aquarian Renaissance, the backdrop needs to be dark. The light expresses as you get to the edges, right? In order to get the brighter light, this really beautiful, bright light, you have to have this really, really dark backdrop. And that's where you get that special expression of miracles. And then you'll also get the opposite because everything in the universe has to have an equal opposite pole balance everything is in balance every action has an equal opposite reaction so now we're having this backdrop of extreme darkness and what's going to happen is usually that darkness is going to be manifest by a a consciousness of fear and a consciousness of duality extreme this is where a lot of people in the you know spiritual community get trapped Mm -hmm. they don't even realize they're trapped into it because they're like i'm a warrior of the light Mm. I'm a light worker, mm-hmm. right? I'm, mm-hmm. And it's become almost a point where it's like cliche because now everyone wants to put on their social media, I'm a light this or I'm a light that. But if we're still stuck in duality, we're not really awakened. Right. It's love consciousness that is the fifth dimension. It's acceptance consciousness that is the fifth dimension. So we talk about a great split. Which is maybe the only thing that actually doesn't have its opposite, which is, which is love love itself the the manifest of all things which is containing the in, the everything and the nothing mm-hmm. within itself the duality collapses into this into the unicity 
and in the unicity, in the center of centers of centers, therein lies the thing that doesn't have a pole and doesn't have an opposite. You've found the center of centers. And that, that's also the substrate of the miraculous is when you can find that within yourself. That's what you were talking about, the ring cell stones, these yeah. stones that have appeared inside the hearts you know, and you can maybe tell that story, mm -hmm, but that mm -hmm. seems to be the consecration of yeah. somebody who's achieved that state beyond polarity. Absolutely. So when I went to meet with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, to teach him this math thing, it was, it was really amazing because like in the middle of it, we had two and a half hours to meet with him. And then in the middle of it, like some guy says something in Tibetan and then everyone's like running around like shuffling around. I'm like, what's going on? There's like thousands of people waiting outside to get blessings. And then one of them says in English, he's like, his holiness would like to invite you to stay for lunch. Now he's only done that three times apparently in history. One of them was with Reverend Desmond Tutu. The other one was with uh, Michelle Obama with a group of women leaders, right? And he wanted to spend more time with them. And he asked us to stay. So we spent another you know, three hours or so with him at lunch in, in the palace. And it was like epic conversation. I mean, like, wow. And I have to say that, you know, I was really shocked because we're walking through this palace and you don't, it's not like this gargantuan thing. It's like, you know, low ceilings. It doesn't look like this palace. It's certainly not palace looking, right? Nothing like his house that he has in, in, uh, in Tibet that he had to flee, right? He's in exile. But there were these little bowls, like on these shelves. And there was like a roll of them. I'm like, what are these bowls? They were only about, you know, this size, like that big. And they had these little, looked like amber beads inside of them. But they were irregular shaped beads. They weren't manufactured. They weren't worked to look beautiful, right? And they were yellow, somewhere brownish color. And what they told me was, these are ring cell stones. And I said, what are ring cell stones? I, I wasn't aware of them. And Lama Tenson, who was with us, and he was sort of our guide, he said, these are the remains of some of the lamas, the high lamas, that have died, they get cremated. And then we search through the cremation, right, all of the ashes, and we find the beads that are left over from the heart. Hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's like there's a crystal that forms in the heart. And there's sometimes, many of them, sometimes they, they congeal into one, right? And so I was like, well, that's interesting. I mean, they said, yes, we can test the purity of the Lama and what level he achieved in this lifetime. It's only usually for 10th level of what they call bodhisattvas, right? And we can test how pure they were in this, what level of attainment they achieved. And they take that with them to the next life. And, and so I went back and immediately started studying all about this. And of course, then I found, when I looked at the Salvatore Mundi painting that was, that was uh, painted by Leonardo da Vinci, that has a lot of controversy around it. A lot of people think it wasn't him who painted it. Maybe it was one of his apprentices. But we found all the same, all of his paintings and works from 1482 onwards. So 1486, it was this three-year period where he's gone. From 1486 until he died in 1519, all are encrypted with Egyptian stories, Egyptian relationship stuff. Because he went to Egypt, went to the mystery schools, he put it all in, you know, and he was a Rosicrucian. Rosicrucian comes from Ross Tau, Ross, Rose, Cross. We're the day of the rose today, 
right? The Rose Cross is Rosicrucianism. So all these polymaths from that period, they were encrypting this information because if they talked about it, they'd be dead. Yeah. I mean, this is the same period that Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake, right? And not, uh, not too far away from the time period where you had uh, Galileo. I mean, they came out of the Dark Ages. Or the Dark Ages ended. There was a big shift that happened the year that Leonardo da Vinci was born, 1451. The Ottoman Empire and the Vatican somehow released a number from the Vatican libraries, a number of hermetic texts, some of which were believed to have been from the Library of Alexandria originally. But these hermetic texts went all around Europe and became the foundation of what is modern hermeticism and Rosicrucianism today. These texts led to an enlightenment coming out of the darkness that was from a plague. They had the plague right around the time that Leonardo was born. They had this extreme darkness. Then they went to an age where all of a sudden people were in this enlightenment enlightened avatars. And you could tell because they were painters, mathematicians, physicists, uh, all of a sudden sculptures, incredible artwork, Michelangelo, and, and great metaphors. If you look at the Sistine Chapel, you see it's a brain around God as God's outreaching to mm -hmm. Adam. What is the metaphor here, right? This is some deep, deep wisdom that was had and was encrypted throughout all the artwork. And so that's what we're sort of left with today, right? And when somebody achieves the ring cell stone, when you look at the Salvatore Mundi painting, right over the heart of Jesus is a large amber stone. This is actually what is referred to as the philosopher's stone. <laughs> and if you look at the cross that is across Jesus' chest, the cross always representing the Christos, Christ consciousness, there are several eights embroidered into this X shape across his chest. While he holds his hands in the position of alpha, instead of making his <laughs> hand the shape of an A, he's holding the, the glass or crystal orb, right, that has three stars that are both the stars of Leo and the stars of Orion, the top three stars of Orion. And even the reflection of his hand in the orb is the shape of the Great Pyramid. Exactly. And then you've got 888, 888, going across the X of his chest and the ring cell stone right in the center, representing Christ's consciousness, which is what 888 is. Comes back to 24. The cube octahedron has 24 edges, and that is the two-dimensional form of a modular spiral if you flatten the cube octahedron because of its 24 edges made of triangles and squares. So this knowledge is embedded in all of this information. This wisdom is all here. The knowledge of the ring cell, the larger the ring cell stone you achieve when you die, and we're building it, and its symbol is a diamond. I mentioned diamond consciousness in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Achieving the rainbow body is through the diamond consciousness, which is about bringing your heart. It's like taking the triangle and knocking off the edges. It becomes a diamond. We all face that in life, right? It's like how much pressure has to be put on coal to make it into a diamond. Well, we go through that same kind of pressure through these experiences that frankly, we choose mm. from our higher self. Now, someone asked me earlier today, do you believe in destiny? And my answer is, yes, I believe in destiny, but I also believe in free will. Destiny is the word we call the free will of the higher self. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
So this is the beauty of achieving this heart-brain awareness that we can tap in. And then through that transcendence, we can also tap into our knowledge and wisdom accumulated through many, many lifetimes. Yeah. I laid in the pyramid only a month and a half ago, and I experienced that, where I actually experienced being in the consciousness of all of my lifetimes all at the same time. I was in the sarcophagus. I was supposed to be there with a, a friend who is a CEO of a major uh, company in the space. I, I won't mention the name, but I was supposed to be there with this person, and they, they couldn't make it at the last second. So I thought, well, I'll just go by myself. And I'd, I've spent time in the pyramid by myself several times, but it had been a while. And so I was like, I was a little worried because usually I like to go in there with some feminine, right? Because when you're there by yourself, you're only representing one side, sure. right? So I was worried about it. And so I, I went to the pyramid. It was around 10 o'clock at night. And I always get overcome with emotion when I start walking up to it because it feels like a reflection of us. Imagine your conscious awareness projected into an edifice that each of the chambers is representing the different chakras. Mm -hmm. And as you ascend to higher levels of consciousness, we get access to more and more of those chambers. We understand them more. So it's collective human consciousness. I also knew that I was there for an important activation for the throat chakra. And I knew I was going to be in the sarcophagus for that exact thing because I'd gotten that, you know, sort of told to me before I went. So as I walked up to the pyramid, these women were walking out. And that's not unusual. It was during Ramadan. By the way, this was the holiest night of the year. I didn't plan it to be the holiest night of the year. It was the night of Orthodox Easter. So it was a Saturday night before Orthodox Easter. It was Ramadan. It was Passover. It was St. George the Dragon's Day, where St. George basically gets control and, and, and defeats his dragons, Kundalini. It was also the first time in 33 years that we had all nine planets in alignment. And those planets have been in alignment and will be until June 24th. It was also Shakespeare's fake birthday because Shakespeare wasn't really a person, right? We know that. It was a, a group of writers that were Rosicrucian writers that encrypted all of this knowledge too into King James Version of the Bible, into the plays, the sonnets, the works of collective works of William Shakespeare were a group of people, Sir Francis Bacon, Edward de Vere, um, and this was wisdom that was passed down from Da Vinci to Anne Boleyn. They lived in the same house. Anne Boleyn's daughter was Queen Elizabeth I. So we believe that he passed mm -hmm. like a map of the Great Pyramid even. And we believe it's actually inside of the Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon inside the altar. We think that there's, we know there's a lot of stuff that's inside that altar. We believe the original manuscripts are in there. We also believe of Shakespeare's works. And we also believe that the map of the Great Pyramid is in there. But because there's a very strong belief that there was a map. Da Vinci got access to it. He got it from Sultan of Cairo, Kate Bay, when he worked for him. But this whole experience, right, as, you know, you kind of look through time and see where all of this has been going, it's all culminating back into this knowledge that's coming back to us now for a reason, for us to remember who we are, to learn to accept fully everybody else, to tap into this heart brain and usher in this new renaissance of understanding and understanding of awareness. And it's also going to be dark. I'm not going to lie. We're going to go through some, things are going to get really, really bizarre. Yeah. They already are getting bizarre. 
but it's going to give birth. You know, the travail of birth, as it's described in the Bible, it's not a painless thing. We will all experience some difficulty going through this transition. But when we talk about this great split, it's not going to be one is going to be on the side of the light and the other is going to be on the side of the dark. It's going to be one is going to remain in total duality and it's going to become extreme duality. And both sides will think, even villains think that they're the good guys. Yep. When the Nazis basically put in place the genocide of Jews, they thought they were doing the righteous act. And I can give countless examples of this. The Inquisition, everything, yeah, of course. The people that are going to experience the beauty, nirvana, right, and will resonate to that message will be in non-duality. Yeah. They're going to be in a place of love and acceptance. And you mentioned this menorah, the flame. And I want to just mention one thing about that because I think it's related. So we've been living in a world of alpha, right, masculine, and omega. Light and dark. There's both light and dark. There's both masculine and feminine within me. There's feminine within you. It's, it's not a reference to gender, necessarily. It's a reference to polarity. It doesn't matter that one could be positive charge and the other one's negative charge. That doesn't matter because which way does the earth spin? The earth spins counterclockwise when you look at it from the top, but it spins clockwise when you look at it from the bottom. It's not one is better than the other. No one's better than anyone else. That's the beauty of this. The new consciousness we're moving into is away from yin, yang, alpha, omega, light, dark, into a trifold which is Alpha Chi Omega. The Christ consciousness is about non-judgment. It's the X. The center of centers. The Christos, the center, X marks the spot. That's what we're moving into now. And it is the Sheen in Hebrew. So you've seen Yahweh, right? The Hebrew writing of Yahweh, which is actually also a math equation. It's pi to the seventh power divided by pi times seven, and that's how you write the Hebrew letters of it. Comes out to be 137. That is the exact boundary of light and darkness. It's a math equation. It's pretty, that's kind of a mind blower. But when you think of it in those terms and you say, okay, what are we missing? There's a little letter that goes in the middle, and it looks like three fingers, right? Uh, and also it can look like this. Right? This is the old Nanu Nanu. From Spock. Right. And Spock also, like live long and prosper type thing. Well, what does this thing represent? This is the sheen in Hebrew. The sheen represents the flame, the spirit. So when you put it in the middle, it goes from Yahweh, right, to Yeshua. It's the Christ consciousness. It's the yin, shin, yang. It's the threefold. Now, it's no longer just red and blue. It's green in the middle. Mm. That is where this great split, people that choose to resonate with that path, the non-dual, replacing judgment with love and acceptance, they will find this beautiful existence, realizing that everything that's happening for them is happening for their greatest benefit. And it's a, a place of bliss. It's an experience of bliss and love because you know, you know, it's like, let's say you lived in a game. The game could be a freaking hell if you didn't know that it was a game. And we love games like that. Those are our favorite games. Then the Monsters moment, everywhere. 
the moment you realize that it's a game for your benefit, for you to grow and expand, to achieve higher states of awareness and consciousness, to learn to love yourself and everybody else, it changes the context of everything. It's no longer, I'm trapped in this cage, you know, I'm in, I'm in this escape room called Earth. How do I get off this place, right? Oh my God, everyone's against me. It's a conspiracy this, a conspiracy that. Everyone, it's the archons, it's the da, da 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 it's the grays, it's whatever the hell it is, right? Once you transcend that way of thinking and think, what is it that I wanted for myself next? Like, bring it on, universe. <laughs> this is what I'm here to experience. It changes everything. And it's such a, it makes your entire existence a beautiful one. And what you start noticing is that everything starts to, it really does start becoming easier because you're no longer judging all the stuff. So you're not experiencing the same cycles of samsara over and over again. And this is what I call monadicity. Hmm. You said unicity, right? Or unity. Monadicity. And I found the way to express it mathematically. And I'm presenting it at, uh, at Disclosure Fest uh, this weekend. This next on next Saturday night uh, to a very large group of people for this. And monadicity is actually finding that every one of us has a golden ratio. We all, everyone, no one's any better than anyone else in this world. No one is any better than anyone else in this world. They're all just reflections of you, and they're all divine emanations of you. When we embrace that context, and we can actually see it, that the conscious mind that we call our persona is able to perceive the unconscious that is the you inverse, the world around you. And those two can multiply by each other to become the number one. Literally, it's X and one over X. Everything. We all have a number. This is our reflection. This is our absorption. Or this is the reflection and we are its absorption. This is a very beautiful thing to realize because then everything happens for the highest benefit. And there are no mistakes. I used to worry about making mistakes, not living up to my life path, not living up to the things that I was talented with, all the things that I was given as gifts. I don't know what you're talking about. Never felt that. <laughs> every fucking day. Every fucking day. Every day, right? But now, with this knowledge, it's about finding your north node. Well, I got a call, you know, a week ago from Katy Perry's office saying they want to have dinner. So I'm like, okay. I had no clue what that was going to be about. And then when she walks up to me and says, I'm your biggest fan. I've watched Codex like so many times. Like, and then Orlando's like, dude, she like does it under the covers and everything late at night on her iPad. She's like, it's had such a big impact. I love the show. Then I know I've found my north node. Yeah. And my purpose. So I'm not seeking anymore. We don't need to seek. It's already there. Mm. The answers are all within us. There was a, a piece of wisdom that came to me, you know, recently on a similar topic. And of course, with the existential threats, there's even more pressure that I've put on myself to do more outward, outward output, you know, the masculine principle. All right, we got to do more. Now is the fucking time. And the <laughs> message, this divine message was like, relax, you'll save the world by savoring it. You'll save the world by savoring it. Like that's the consciousness of gratitude, of radical receiving, of radical love. And like then the emanations that will flow from that 
will be natural. It won't be trying. It'll be it'll be music. It'll be music that so I'm playing gorgeous. with every word, every casual encounter will will be the emanations that are creating what I'm desiring to create. Whereas doing anything from struggle will be bound in struggle. Anything I do from fear will be bound in fear. Anything I do from radical monadicity will be monadic. <laughs> right. It's it's so freeing when you come to that because it's like, wait, I don't have to do anything. I just have to be. Yeah. We have lived in an age of human doing. The time of human doing is over. <laughs> it's time for human being. On the day of the rose, 2022, it has been declared. It is known. Yeah. The day of human doing is over. <laughs> the day of human doing is over. It's time to just be. Yeah. And, and. You see it already happening. I mean, you see things like the last 200 years, it, were, it was the intermediaries, the people that could extract leverage of others who actually were rewarded the financial results in society. That structure is collapsing in front of our very eyes. You see things like NFTs. I, I went to one of my friends who's an artist. She's a very talented artist. Her name's Delphine Diallo. And I told her I, I, I was, my token got, went uh, on the exchanges last October. And we met up with a group of people that were following my work in New York. And I, and I said, I mean, you really need to look at NFTs. And she called me this last, you know, about a month or so ago. She said, can you come to LA? I want you to come to this gallery, you know, thing where we're actually doing an NFT thing for my work. You know, and I got picked up by this, you know, super gallery thing. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, absolutely. She made tons of money. She was a starving artist almost. Never really starving, but not thriving. Right. Now society has created a new structure that is rewarding more the creators, right? The, the writers. It's rewarding the patent filers. It's rewarding the inventors. It's rewarding the artists, the musicians, because we now live in a world where creativity is rewarded more than intermediaryship. Mm -hmm. Intermediaryship is the last two centuries. We're now in creatorship. We have careers now where people call themselves contentainment specialists, right? What is mm -hmm. contentainment? Well, it's some form of creation. Yep. So this is, I think, a sea change. It's already happening. We're now entering in the age of Aquarius will be the age of human beingness. And the age of, of what the Quechua called Aini, reciprocity, where that which we put out into the world will be rewarded. And the systems are coming online. Like you said, NFTs are just the, the infantile version of what this is. And, and not, to, not to diminish it, I think it's beautiful, but it's just the beginning. So it's I'm saying. It's the like beginning. the beginning of the Herculean force that's developing. That's and self-sovereignty. Totally. Individual self-sovereignty. We don't need government in the same ways that we did before. Nope. That's it's time to transcend it. And that's, you know, if, if there's something I'll dedicate my life in the last, you know, 30 years or so of my life, it will be to helping to establish systems, structures around education, around, you know, new ways of looking at university. I think that's going to dramatically shift. New ways of expanding perspectives also Where the universities understands the universe. How about that? Something like that, right? <laughs> the one song. Um, and, and then also contextualizing 
that spirituality doesn't require religious dogma. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I think could benefit my children and my p- children's children and hopefully will be a catalyst for being the change we want to see in the world. Amen. Thank you for being on the show. Thank, thank you for you. everything you do. Thank you for your heart. You thank know, you. Thank you for uh, for you. Simple. Thank you for being you. And yes, you are more than good enough. Hmm. You've done so much already. And I know you'll still do more, but you don't have to have the thought in your mind of having to do more. Mm-hmm. It will just happen as a natural consequence of you expressing your divine nature. And so it is. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We love you so much. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Robert Edward Grant. Make sure you check out his show on Codex. And I've already talked to him, and we're going to be back soon with another episode, this time talking about hermetic wisdom.